Hello and welcome to this week's episode of The Giant Pod with me, Andy Rintmore. My guest this week is drummer Robert Bryan. We go back many years. We talk about his work with Peter Gabriel, Andy Partridge of FTC, Gold Frap, Simple Minds, Susie Sue from Susie and the Banshees. We also talk about some tales from on the road. We talk about getting his start in drumming. We talk about endorsements. We talk about the drums he's playing at the moment, the cymbals he's playing at the moment. And we basically have a great big natter about being drummers and our love of being drummers. Uh, as I said, me and Rob go way, way back to when I was studying in college. He used to come in and do some drum tutoring with us all, and that's how I met him. And it was really great, actually, to sit down and catch up with Rob recently, because it's been a few years since we've talked, and my God, do we talk. The energy in this is insane. The love in this is insane. Here it is, Robert Bryan on the Giant Pod. Here we go. I've just come out of Phil Collins' hole. Um, <laughs> uh, oh, matron. <laughs> um, oh, my God. Face value. Hello, I, I must be going. But yeah. seriously. Um, I thought That's both, your favourite, isn't it? That's I your think favorite. it might be. I think... Yeah. Um, oh, yeah, we talked about this. Yes, we did. We did. It we was did. a late night discussion. It was a late night discussion. <laughs> yes. Um, and I did hear both sides the other day, and I thought it was a bit boring yeah i mean as i said to you on our little chat and i I, this has been well documented and no one cares what i say anyway which is fine (laughs) but for me you know face value and hello i must be going no jacket required as well but really it's those first two uh you can hear his heartache and let's face it music's about emotion always you can hear the aggression the, the you know and the anger uh, and the sadness in all the songs it's not always bitter but some of the most bitter moments my god like in the air tonight what a bitter song that is yeah you know um and uh on hello i must be going um uh, i don't care anymore is another one but that's kind of funky i'm thinking of um do you know do you care that right. is just like every time i hear that man that pounding rhythm with those timpanies and stuff that are on it and the way his voice sounds and oh man but again, we use the word haters, but let's say people that dislike him or take the mickey out of him. I, I, we said this in our conversation, yeah. but, you know, I would say d- listen to those first two albums, listen to his drumming with Genesis, early Genesis, listen to his drumming with Brand X, then come back and tell me that this guy isn't worth where he is. Yeah, right. but it's the Tars, Tarzan soundtracks and the Disney. Yeah, but that's just another side of what he's done. Yeah. What's wrong with that? You telling me an artist you like. You know, and they say, well, David Bell, I say, right, but well, Tin Machine wasn't great. Right. <laughs> you know, Tin Machine wasn't an, an amazing moment in pop history. And he did you know, Labyrinth. Like, <laughs> and he did that as well, you know, with, with um, which is quite dodgy because he's not very wearing very much down below and it's a kid's show and there's <laughs> film and there's moments where the camera just gets a bit too close for, you know, which is why a lot of. 80s girls used to like to watch it, but... Um, Can't but half yeah. juggle balls, though. Err, matron. matron. But, yeah, so I- I'm with you on that. I think it's great. Uh, yeah, no jacket required. Yeah, 
he found a new love. He was happy. And the music sounds happy. And why not? My God, he'd been through three or four years being depressed. Let him be happy. And, you know, I just find it really sad that he's kind of where he is now with his health and everything. I'm not saying some of it might not be self-inflicted. I don't know. But I just think it's very sad. Um, that, That clip of him on YouTube when he had to gaffer tape a stick to his hand to do that Motown album, that is just one brave to put mm. that out for everyone to see. And that yeah. was the start of his this sort of decline, I think, um, his illness and everything. And, uh, and two, what a shame. Yeah. I remember watching it and I didn't really know what to do. And I wish the person who told me to watch it and it was like, Oh, watch it. Cause it's funny or what it wasn't that. It's like, just check it out. And it was, and I wish I hadn't because it was really sad. Yeah. The drummer that I remember and grew up with, he was gone. You yeah. Know? Um, He's, and he is. Gone. He's had um, talking of his career. Someone I, I watched an interview with his book tour, which was not dead yet, which came out a few years back. I've got that. It's a good book. Is it any good? Yeah, it's good. I'm enjoying it. I haven't finished it yet, but right, yeah. okay, right. Yeah, I thought about picking it up. And, and yeah, they, you should. They said that he is right. So there's a there's a very exclusive group of artists, right? And there's only three right. of them. They're oh. people that were in a band that sold over a hundred million records. And then right. did the same in a solo career. And right. there's only three of them. I'm pretty sure you'll get who they are. Do you want to have a guess? Well, Paul McCartney's going to be one. Yeah. Uh, Phil Collins. Yeah. Eric Clapton, maybe. No. Um, it's going to be someone really obvious, isn't it? Yeah. Um, when you put on the spotlight, it's just like, I can't think of anyone. Um, oh, my God. Well, actually, that could get really deep. So it could be like Rod Stewart. There could be loads of different people, yeah. really. But it's not, is it? Um, it's Michael Jackson. Uh, I was going to say Michael, but I thought, oh no! But of course, it was the Jacksons, wasn't it? Of course, it was. Yeah, yeah, that seems obvious now. Silly That's yeah, a, yeah. incredible, isn't it? It's, it is. It's, it's Paul McCartney of the Beatles, Michael fucking Jackson, and Phil Collins. I mean, two heavyweights and Phil Collins, but he is a heavyweight. <laughs> he is a heavyweight. The yeah. thing is, he is a heavyweight man, and as I say, it's that Tarzan, that Disney end of things. I'm going to pick the, up that Tarzan album, and I'm going to listen to it with the um, with the most uh, open mind. Me too. I'm going to play the out of it, man. I'm going to play the hell out of it and enjoy it, you know? Because even even some of the singles that I've heard from that, I think it's Tarzan, wasn't it? Um, yeah, he did do Tarzan, yeah. Yeah, I'm sure it was. Because I know John did a few as well. But, you know, what's wrong with having strings to your bow? He was doing ballads even. I mean, listen to um, If Leaving Me Is Easy on Face Value. I mean, that song, Will Break Your Heart, is absolutely amazing. I played it to someone the other day who was uh, not sure about it, and I put it on. I was like, no, listen to this. And they were like, fuck, that's amazing. (laughs) And I said, I listened to the sound of the recording. Listen to his voice, listen to those harmonies. Listen to where it jumps up just towards the end, and it gets loud again, and it comes down. It's just a work of art. It's it's amazing. And if you're in that place, we've all been there at some point, that Uh song, you put that on. The Roof is Leaking. Ah, oh, that's great too. Yeah. I mean, every track, seriously, if you put any of those on on these first two records for me now, I would probably not go skip it. I wouldn't. I would play it through. Yeah. Some of the later ones I might, because I still had them all, but yeah. um, I might sort of go, fall this a bit. <laughs> but the first two records, man, I could listen to them. And I did the other day after we spoke, I dug out my um, Hello, I Must Be Going vinyl, which is around somewhere. Yeah. Uh, and I loved it. Uh, it. it is it's good it's good the opening track oh that's the one that's i don't care anymore isn't it 
That's yeah. that's some there's some heavy stuff. And I know you've talked about is it Manu Cache? What's his name? Um, oh yeah, Manu Cache with that reminds Peter me of um, yeah. Peter Gabriel live in Athens. Lay your hands yeah. on me. Oh, that's incredible! <laughs> yeah. That is incredible. What a show that is! Yeah, that's amazing. Uh, 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 Manu Cache is one of those drummers. Yeah, when he when he landed on to me, he landed on so, which is the first one I'd heard him play on. And then uh, I heard him. A friend of mine lent me an album by Joni Mitchell, which he recorded at Real World, right. called Ch- Chalk Mark in a Rainstorm from 1986 or seven. Um, and he played drums on that too. Uh, and I just 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 the way he played, he just opened up a whole different thing. Because I mean, I loved the way Stuart Copeland used splashes and. The same kind of fills, really, but it was a different band, different context. And he's a different drummer as well. He's more, you know, always pushing. Whereas Manny was like, because he had to in the police. Come on, let's face it, it's a trio. It's got to be exciting. I get that. Yeah. You know, and I love Stuart Copeland. And, and he has one hell of a, for a traditional grip on that snare, the crack. Hell of a, the backbeat is immense, uh, you yeah. know. And, and so I've got a massive love for Stuart Copeland and that band and that period. But, but yeah, Manny's just got that more laid back you know, kind of world music vibe going as well, as well as a bit more jazz in there. And it's not better or best, it was just different. Yeah. So when he did certain fills on the splashes and it oh, landed differently, God. it was kind of like, oh my God, you know. Yeah. I could see the connection to Copeland, but it was a different world again. And uh-huh. it, was, it was wonderful. So for years, I, yeah, I lost myself in um, Us uh, and anything that he was on, yeah. you know, his solo album as well. Come where he talk sings to on me it. on Us is... Oh, oh. Well, yeah. Uh, it, it just makes you cry. <laughs> yeah. I mean, when I did that, my first DW playlist last year, I put on um, the, fir- the, the first one up was Dance On by Prince with Sheila e from Love Sexy, because that's just a great groove. That blew me away when I heard it at 18 years of age. It was like, whoa, um, especially on an album like that. Uh, but my second choice was um, from So, uh, it's, it's gone out of my head now, but it's, uh, I'll think of it in a minute. Okay. Red Rain? I want you here. I want you here. Yeah. Hear that voice again. Sorry, that's, oh, the chorus. that's a great song. The drum track on that man, that is, that is amazing. immense. Yes. Boom, ka, boom, boom, ba, boom, boom, ka, boom, boom, ba, boom, ka, boom, boom, ba. It's like killer. It's yeah. like, oh my god, <laughs> and all the feels in it as well, and it's just exciting, man. Yeah. So I, I had to choose that because, and I know some people messaged me afterwards saying I knew Sledgehammer and all that business and Red Rain, but I've never heard that. And I was like, yeah. What do you think? They're like, it's amazing. Yeah. I'm like. That's Manu Cache. I was 16 and I heard that. My head exploded out my ass. <laughs> like, how, actually, how can you do that? But yeah, yeah, my head just exploded. It was just like, whoa, He's this is incredible. The, um, the live version of Sledgehammer from the So Special Edition, which I think is live in Athens. It's got a two-disc thing with it. The, yeah. the, the fills he's dropping into Sledgehammer yeah. are like, yeah, I've played this a million times and I'm just having fun with this now. And you know the story of it, don't you? Um, furnish I, I, me, furnish I'll me. keep it a very short story, but um, obviously I know some stories that I shouldn't share because of certain people I've worked with, but um, <laughs> this is a story I can share, and everyone knows it really, but um, he was recording, and it wasn't at Real World, it was the studio which was at Peter's house, which is in Box or near Box, anyway. I, I, it's around. Yeah. Um, and um, he said... Before he he literally had his bags packed to get the taxi from from near Box or Bath wherever it was to go uh, to the airport and, and go home, you know, take him to Heathrow or Gatwick wherever. Um, 
And he said, I've got this track. It's rough, but do you want to play? Pl- could you play it before you go? And he said, well, you know, like literally I'm out the door. And I expect he sorted out some. And he said, yeah, fine, I'll, I'll play it. Yeah. And it was Sledgehammer. And he went in there, maybe it's one or two takes. People say one, maybe. Bill, like they say kind of blue was one take, but we also know it wasn't because they've reissued the Masters. And yeah, there's, there's loads take of two and three on there. <laughs> exactly. It's like, how many times did they stop all blues and flamenco sketches and stuff? Um, and, uh, oh, so what as well? Poor old Paul Chambers screwing up a few times. But um, yeah, and he did it a few times and he come out and they were listening. And Peter is like Prince or Steely Dan or any musician, like, we'll do some more. And he went... That's the take. And he went, yeah, but, you know, like he said, no, I'm telling you, that is the take. And I know people that have worked with Manu, and he's got this thing that he'll, whether it's the first or the third or the fourth or the 35th, whatever, he'll come in and go, that's me, that's it. And people will try, because Lorena McKinnon, I've been touring with lately and working with, right. she's had him on, on, on an album with her. And um, it was the same thing. Brian, the, the, the MD, said it was very much like that. He would come in and she would go, well, that was lovely, uh, Manny. Well, maybe we could have a, another take. Maybe. And he was like, no, <laughs> that's the take. Right. I'm telling you, that's me at my best. That is the take. Right. And that, man, I've got respect Ooh. for that. That's such confidence, man, yeah. to say, no, no, no. That's me. That's me done. <laughs> yeah. I'm out of here. You pay me <laughs> now and I go. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of like, whoa, not many people can do that. Yeah. And um, and I know people who've worked with him, as I say, like Lorena and Charlie Jones, uh, who said he's a lovely guy, really warm hearted. And, you know, he, 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 he's not like coming in and saying, right, I'm done. So I want to go now. Like he, he, he's really there for the music, yeah. but he's really passionate that when he's got a take that he thinks has got all the right elements, that's it, you know? And, what can you say? That's what's made him a millionaire, you know, as yeah. well as his French French TV career, of course. But talking but yeah, of um, what a musician, talking of kind of blue. Just before we move on to um, talking about you, <laughs> me. Nobody <laughs> wants to know about me. Let's talk about music. <laughs> um, the uh, that first cymbal crash. Oh, it's an orgasmic moment if you can say that on a podcast. You can, it's, yes. It, it's one of those moments in jazz history that I think Jimmy Cobb had no idea that he was going to lay on Manchild. You know, he had no idea what he was doing. And in interviews, he said he thought it was a bit much. And I yeah. think somewhere I read that he thought Miles was going to turn around and go, hey, man, you know, and they left it. And he was like, oh, I'm off. OK, I'll just stay out the way. Yeah. <laughs> but what a moment. Because that, I... I think that the way they were recording back then was, you know, everyone had to be very dynamic and they were all placed around one mic, I guess, that, or maybe one or two. One or two, yeah, around the room. But you have to be very, very careful. Yeah. Very careful. And he said, yeah, he hit that crash and he, he came into it just a little bit, a little bit uh, hungry. It's a bit hot. Yeah. It's a bit hot. <laughs> hot is the word. And it's, but the way, and he, and he thought, oh man, I fucked it here. Like I've, I've ruined it. And, Absolutely. And the, the way that that thing, crashes over the entire sound but then sizzles away the, the yeah the rivets are going yeah. it's beautiful oh it's so textural it, it is and some people say that's the start of modern jazz and some people say the start of the 60s was on she loves you uh, that was uh, the start yeah, right that drum roll love you that was the moment and it just burst out the speakers of excitement and that is one of those moments as well that you know done in a slightly different way of course different genre but it's and it was whereas Ringo kind of planned is I guess but that was kind of like a moment that yeah people say I heard that symbol and I knew and the, the air that it, like you said the air that it's got around it as the sizzles yeah. die down and the trumpet rises out of it, it it's does. like 
it, it's, it's hairs on the back of your neck, no matter how many times you hear it. Yeah. And we were talking about Bill Evans earlier, whether we were recording that or not. I don't know if yeah, you were Yeah, we've that got point. the whole chat. <laughs> Great, man. I mean, apart from that little bit where I went back and then I re-recorded again. So there might be a little bit that's slightly different, but not much. Yeah. Just for our sound checking. Because um, like a fool, I didn't read what you said. <laughs> Typical drummer. Um, there's there's um, uh, Flamenco Sketches, which is... Is it Flamenco Sketches? Sketches of Spain? No, it's definitely Flamenco Sketches, which right. is on side two. Uh, side two, God. Yeah, or it's track six or whatever, <laughs> track five. Um, but it's like all blues. I think on side two, there's only two tracks. I'm sure there is on the album. But anyway, um, it's the last one, the ballad, Flamenco Sketches. Bill Evans solo in that. His first eight notes that he hit spanned over, maybe because it's a ballad, because it's slow. But it, they, those eight bars, uh, the eight choice of notes, are they just slay me every time I hear it. It just... He had that, as we said earlier, he could play loads of chords, be complicated. He could swing hard. He could play laid back. But when he lays down things like that, it's just kind of like no one can get near him for that. Jarrett is good. You know, they're all geniuses. But if you go to it after this show, put on flamenco sketches, sit down with a glass of wine or milk, whatever your thing is, water, whatever, um, and listen to that track. And when it gets to his solo, the you know, they've all been playing beautifully and lyrically. And then it gets to him and the space just opens. And the space in what he plays... Actually, I'm not too fond of how his solo ends, funny enough. But the beginning, you know, like four bars. Remember, it's a ballad, so that's a long time in a ballad. It's yeah. just, man, I'm telling you, the choice of... And I talk to piano players and they go, oh, man, I know, I know. You could have done anything. And his choice, just genius, man, honestly. Breaks my heart every time. Talk about genius. We will we will get on to talking about your life and drumming and everything. But I want to, <laughs> I, I want to say two more words to you, Watermelon uh, Man. Oh, Herbie Hancock. Yeah. yeah? Oh, man, so good. I've got loads of vinyl here as well. Herbie Hancock. Uh, again, he's one of those people that started in a certain in a certain way, and he could he could have spent his whole career just playing jazz or bebop or jazz and cool jazz and but he just kept evolving you know and then in the end you see him with synthesizers and, you know, and stuff and he's just rocket and things and it's just like i love that growth you know i've always like i said with the beatles it's the growth i love you know whether it be good or bad and david bowie the growth bob dylan prince all these people i love and miles davis that i really care about you know and cold training people and there's others that i always mention them but there's others um they kept growing even if the fans said i don't like this they will say well i don't care that's great you like the old stuff i'm going this way you come with me or you stay back there i don't care either way because i've got your money if that's what we're saying you know <laughs> i've got you i've got you your money from those records so yeah. if you're not going to buy the new ones then a, a, a new generation can have those and, and i i just love that and herbie hancock was always shooting forward um very lucky to be with miles not lucky because he wasn't good i just mean what a great opportunity yeah he had his blue note career already so it's kind of cemented to a certain degree but that gig with miles just kind of and tony williams was in that same band and ron carter he was already a bit older but yeah and wayne shorter so those three were just shoved up on the world stage and could like the beatles could they handle it yeah they had the talent of course they could handle it mm. um and his catalog is just 
it, it's so varied. I mean, I don't like all of it, but again, that's why I love it. It's because it, it challenges me. It challenges me to to listen. So if I want to go back to like um, Imperian Isles or whatever it is, that jazz record with Cantony Pyland on it or whatever, um, I can go back to that. And if I want, I think Taking Off is the early version of Watermelon Man. I can go back to that or I go to Headhunters, which is a genius record with the Watermelon Man. Most people know as the club dancey version or whatever, the, the chilled version. Yeah. You know, I could go to that. I could go to Rocket for the 80s, which I know can be cheesy sometimes but man a jazz cat doing that in 1982 or 83 man it's genius it's just like yeah keep shooting keep shooting forward keep always looking forward don't look back keep going because all these jazz chops are coming out but they're on a moog now you know yeah. or, a, uh, or or um a profit five or something or as well as a whirly and the the obvious things you expect and he's pushing forward he's got lindrums he's doing new shit i love it man <laughs> exciting same with miles his last album was with a bloody bunch of rappers and he did some tracks with prince you know it's just like he wasn't going to play kind of blue for the rest of his life yeah you know and again there's some ca- records in his mid 70s which are a bit hard to listen to because they just they kind of ramble and it's just all like and stuff going on he's playing through a a wah-wah pedal and it but but again i'm sat there half of me's going i wish it would stop soon but half of me's going this is miles this is miles davis playing like this man this is amazing like geez this is like he's listening to Jimi hendrix and parliament but he doesn't want to be poppy and two minute songs he still wants to do his thing but man how expressive is that so he put on on the corner, on oh, one of those man, records, on the corner. and I totally dig it. It's like yeah. this is rocking. It's so random, and it's a bit like Bitches Brew that one, a little uh, bit. But um, yeah. the the Beastie Boys um, really did some wild stuff with on the corner, um, on the samples. corner, yeah. And I'm so glad because that album would never disappear. But it's one of those ones that people don't talk about as often. A silent way, like I mentioned earlier, or Bitches Brew, um, and another one around that time that's really good is Jack Johnson, right? Uh, you should check that. It's always all those albums have got uh, musical directions or directions in music or whatever it is. Miles Davis plus the album title, right. and I really like that. You could say it's pretentious, but no, it's not because he was telling his audience, "This ain't gonna be Sketches of Spain. This ain't gonna be Kind of Blue. This isn't gonna be ESP or Nefertiti. This is gonna be new shit that I'm laying on you, yeah. and you better get with it." And I love those stories of even before he went to the electric stuff when he was out with Wayne Shorter uh, and. Um, uh, Tony Williams and Tony Williams was like 17 or something and uh, Herbie Hancock was 20 or something and they're doing all these tours you know European tours and people used to walk out because he'd say you know or one main short to say this is going to be so what you know and of course they're expecting but it was yeah. like 25 times as fast <laughs> and it, it, you know and it's like the bass, Ron Carter didn't have time to play the, the phrase. It was doo-doom, ba-doo-ba-doo-doom, ba-doo-ba-doo-ba-doom, ba-doo-ba-doo-doom, ba-doo-ba-doo-ba-doom, ba-doo-ba-doo-ba-doo-ba-doo-ba-doo-ba-doo-ba-doo-ba-doo-ba-doo-ba-doo-ba-doo-ba-doo-ba-doo-ba-doo-ba-doo-ba-doo-ba-do
periods and I like my favourite Prince periods and Miles Davis. But I like it all because it's just kind of, even if I don't rate it as highly as some of the other stuff, who's to say? Because the stuff I don't like, someone else loves. And I think that's what's so wonderful. But if you've just got the same kind of stuff all the time, it's like, yeah, it could be consistently brilliant. But what's that actually saying about anything? Like, I mean... I mean, I guess a lot to some people, so I shouldn't say that. But just to me, it doesn't talk to me as much. I like people to make mistakes, shoot high, and sometimes not quite get where they thought they wanted to go. But who cares? There's still some art in it anyway. You want the moments where you go, you know what? I kind of see what they're reaching for here. Yeah. They haven't haven't quite got there. But I can see they've done enough, they've done a good enough job that I see, I see the thought process here and I appreciate that they tried it and it didn't work out. Yeah, exactly. And and it, and if I was brave enough to do that with someone with a career, man, that that's quite that's that's quite an undertaking. Mm. You know, cuz cuz you know, one person we haven't spoken, we probably will do in a minute, but even if we don't, it doesn't matter, but that whole purple rain thing, which is again like the albatross on his back, yeah. which um, was a love-hate relationship for him, but you know, the next album after that, Around the World in a Day, is completely different. It's like psychedelic Beatles, completely off the chart. Right. And uh, Warner Brothers were like, what's this? Like, And he said, well, it's my next record. And he'd already sort of recorded it while he was doing Purple Rain anyway. He's like, this is my next step. And they're like, no, it's not. <laughs> Give us Purple Rain 2. Go yeah. back in there. We want more Baby I'm a Star. We want more Darling Nikki. We want more When Doves Cry. He said, well, I've got that. Like, this is what I'm, this is the album. Yeah. This is the album, guys. You're not getting anything else. And he said to them, I don't want any singles off it, which of course is a bit daft, but they said, well, there has to be one single off it. And so of course they chose Raspberry Beret, which appeared came a hit but he wasn't fussed he said he he was so like not fussed he was like well he just done one of the biggest world tours of 1984 with purple rain obviously because it was massive you know number one album number one film won the oscar for the soundtrack he's flying high and he's 20 something you know so i guess he had a lot of balls at that point mirror matron um <laughs> and, and he said he said send the album out to all the record cut uh, to all the radio stations let them pick the single let them play whatever they want Right. Which I think is kind of cool, man. I yeah. think that's a really rad way of doing it. Yeah. You know? And of course, Warner Brothers were like, we can't do that. No one's ever done that in history. Not even the Beatles did that. Like, We need a single. Um, so eventually they all sat around the table and said, right, I think it's going to be this one, you know? Um, but yeah, what a thing. And again, you, how easy would it have been to, for him to release stuff? Because now it's all coming out in the vault, you know, these 12 album things. I've got one of them here, the yeah. 1999 box set, which is massive on vinyl. Um, he had all that stuff sitting there and there was, all they had to do was clean them up and they were, they were all going to be hits. But yeah. he was like, no, you can have that. I'm going this way. Yeah. And he did that all through his career. Parade, the next album was the same and Sign of the Times. Of course, eventually after Diamonds and Pearls, it kind of changes and maybe some people think it blends out a little bit and that's fine. I get that. But you can't like Bowie or Prince, uh, Beatles, you can't keep going forever. Yeah. You know, he went from 1980 to 1992 with all of his records, critics still citing his really good records. And then it kind of, it changed, but it's going to, because people catch you up as well. Because like he said, people catch you up, you know, they, they eventually catch you up and say, right, I'm having that sound. I'm having that idea. I'm doing that. And eventually your sound becomes everyone's sound. And um, yeah, but I just think that's a brave move. And I love that sort of. It is very brave. I didn't get Prince for the longest time. And I rem- used to remember like a little bit of backstory for, for people listening. You know, I first met you when I was studying at Bath College, probably eight that's years right. ago. That's right. How I many? Rem- uh, huh? <laughs> How many years? Uh, eight, maybe. Ha- oh, really? Maybe more. Um, <laughs> no, maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, 
And um, I remember you saying, oh, I love Prince so much, blah, blah, blah. And, and I remember you <laughs> posting pictures of you, you have like live bootlegs in your car and stuff. Yeah. And I would right, try yeah. it and I'd be like, there's something in this that like Rob is seeing and I wasn't getting, I just didn't get it. I didn't get it. I didn't get it. Yeah. I tried, I tried. Obviously, Purple Rain is a great song, but like I tried and I tried. I was like, I don't get this. I don't yeah. fucking get this. <laughs> and then I put, You're not the first. You're not the first. And then I put on the Sign of the Times reissue box set oh, yeah. and i went to that live show that's at the end of it oh yeah and i was like this is this is i get this now i get this this is church yeah it, yeah 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 it's, it's like a revolver moment for me because it was like by 87 he still had a bit more trailblazing to go but people were starting to catch him up and he was also starting to listen to rap music because that was starting to come out and there's a story that he said to susan rogers who was his um engineer his chief engineer said he said susan eventually people aren't going to want melodies they're not going to want instrumentation they've got a drum machine and a voice he said i've already done that with when doves cry he said but that's going to be the future because i'm hearing this stuff out of chicago some house music and some rap stuff that's coming out that's what's going to be happening no chord changes just the same thing all the way through nobody wants a chorus nobody wants a bridge and right. he was right. And so when he wrote a song like Housequake, which is amazing on that record. Oh, my God. He was just picking up on Chicago. But so a bit like the Beatles. He kind of pilfered something and made it his own and made something that people go, that was the future. But actually, it was kind of being done already. But he was the star to dress it up and say, yeah, this is what it is. So again, he was in the crow's nest at that point. And you hear that song and you hear him watch him play it live. I mean, I, you know, again, we're not saying better or best, but I, I, I see that. And when I see people talk about Michael Jackson, I'm like, look, I love Michael, but check out Housequake on that tour. See how he's dancing, how he's pl- Yeah. Just the whole thing to me the is feel. kind of like... And, it, and it's the bits yeah. between the songs in that live album as well. Like I said, it's it's gospel. It's like got this this energy to it. That it, it has. We're all there together as one. And, 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 and you can hear the directions to his band as well. Yeah. One yeah. more time. Let's go. You know, it's a bit James it, Brown and uh, it, just amazing. It's t- the thing is, again, Prince is one of those ones I will talk to people like the Beatles about because I'm passionate. And I'll say, look, I know he never came up saying he didn't. If you read about him, even in this early, before he was a megastar, he was saying, I love James Brown. I love the Beatles. I love Joni Mitchell. I love George Clinton. You know, I, I, I love Sinatra. I love Fleetwood Mac. You know, so his, his music was very black, but also very white, very, you know, avant-garde, very poppy. He liked it all, which is what made him so cool was the yeah. fact he had all those elements in in his performance and in the way he was and then eventually he found the sex thing you know that was a good way to sell and he wasn't stupid but at the same time if you read about him he had a very confusing upbringing i guess we all do to a certain degree um but mixed messages about sex and religion and that came out in his music and eventually he thought right i'm going to use that because the first two albums is quite earth wind and fiery even though he's playing everything on it at 17 it's bloody genius really it's amazing um but then he gets to like Dirty Mind and that's where he's wearing his suspenders and all that and high heels. And that's where he realised that, oh, I could do this sort of soul, soul train thing or I could use this other thing that's nagging away, which is this this sexuality, Christianity thing. And of course, he got on board with that, which actually was uh, helped him write more interesting songs that took him forward and made him and Madonna the most sort of like naughtiest artists of their generation. Yeah. Where Bruce Springsteen and Michael were sort of quite, you know, 
you could show your granny, but you couldn't really show your granny Madonna necessarily some of her stuff. Certainly not Prince stuff because he was the first artist ever to get the, the the label of obscene lyrics, wasn't he? He was the reason, and I'm not sure he's proud of that by the end of it. But when he was younger, I think he was proud of that sticker that was on all these records of like parent parental guidance, you know, because yeah. of Purple Rain and the masturbation thing in Darling Nikki, which is so like nothing compared to sexy MF, which he did later, which is quite rude. <laughs> <laughs> um, but but yeah, I mean it's. it's it's amazing, really. But, uh, I mean, as I say, the, something about him as he got older, which I'll just talk about, is just that when he got to musicology, he almost looked back on the old stuff, but he never regretted it because people said, do you regret the sexual connotation in your music and where it's got to now with hoes and, M, you know, MFs and all that business? He said, well, I did the MF thing, but, you know, I always tried to present women in a really positive way uh, rather than just complete sexual objects. You know, yeah. there was songs coming from... And if you go back to Sign of the Times, which brings it back to that, If I Was Your Girlfriend, that song, if ever, no one's ever heard it, and people have said, oh, I've heard people talking about that, but listen to it again, because it's talking from the point of it being completely flipped around, of the guy saying, look, I want to be your girlfriend. I want to understand everything that gets you off. I want right. to understand what you're about. Yeah. You know, I want to do it, not as your guy, but as your girlfriend. I want to be that best friend that I can't be. And that, I mean, most guys, even the Stones are talking about, you know, like being a, a guy's guy and all that. Yeah. And of course, country is singing about what that sings about. Bon Jovi was singing about in your Jeep and my girl and falling in love. And then you got this guy singing about, hey, I want to be your girlfriend. I want to imagine that. You know, yeah. what's that like? I want to make you up. I want to wear makeup with you. you know? I mean, that is quite a head F for, for somebody to get their head around. And yeah. I was 17. I remember listening to it. And I just like the drum machine on it. And I like the riff. That da I just thought it's a really quirky little riff, which it is. Yeah. A really sparky, but very barren. And then it goes back into this voice, which is slightly higher pitched, singing about this this poor guy trying to get to understand his woman because he wants to love her so much. And I just think that's man, that's quite a thing. And then another song he's being more like overtly sexual, but then he can flip it around. So when people say that about him, I don't get it because he wrote wrote too many well, songs very, from the, the woman's perspective you know very andro- andro- uh, androgynous exactly in many exactly. ways and again for people say oh yeah he was just doing that to sell it because i said that earlier i said yeah but like the beatles or any of these things we talk about he could live it he knew enough about it it wasn't like he was playing at it it was one song he kept coming back to throughout his whole career mm. talking about these these subject matters you know so it wasn't, I'm going to get you baby I'm going to give it to you and it's going to be hard love and all that it wasn't that yeah. <laughs> it wasn't that he could flip that round completely he was never that blatant and there's a, a certain genius and of course the fact that he could play all these instruments and because it, it was Stevie Wonder it was all these people but he had something else you know yeah. he had he had the dancing thing that Stevie didn't have and he had the instrumentation that James Brown never had but he was always saying I borrowed from all of them and I made it mine and and for me, I loved all those artists, and all of a sudden, I, I saw this peak, and it was him. It's and of course, like yeah. you said, you've got you have. I'm not saying you had to see him because he's gone now. I hate when people say, "Oh, you should have seen him live." Um, but if you catch some live performances, when people don't get it, listening to Spotify, I get that. Like you said, it's hard one to get into. I never know what to play people. Really, yeah. I say watch some live stuff. If you know whether you're a musician or not, watch the live stuff from different periods. You'll see why people say he was one of the greatest. Yeah. Not, some people say he was of his generation. I, w- I would never be so bold, but there's enough information there to yeah yeah he's going to be hard to beat. That's why his halftime show at the Super Bowl 
is so tough to beat, man. Yeah. It wasn't necessarily my favourite performance either, I've got to say, but it stood up over the test of time. One man and a band and a guitar, like rather yeah. than 12. Though the weekend was brilliant, and I'm not knocking anyone. There was great performances, loads of dancers and the lights, I get it. But for me, man, if you could do it with your band and a guitar and a stage of your symbol sign... That's it, man. That's all you need, you yeah. know. It's, it's just talent. It's just who you are. And it rained sells hard. It. it rained hard. Man, and, and I love that thing. through it. I love that thing he, he said, because he they, they said, you're going to go on. He thought about it for a bit. He said, yeah. And he said, I'll tell you, I want to ask for one thing. And I thought, oh, my God, he's going to pull out. He said, can you make it rain harder? <laughs> so eventually he thought right i'm gonna to have to do this and of course he's very he doesn't want to fall over so he's being very careful and of course he wasn't doing the splits by then anyway but he's been very careful where he goes and he would have to be because if he fell over people would remember that too yeah but he he does pull out and i remember staying up until three in the morning to watch it in when i lived in bath then i went straight to bed because i don't understand american football and i remember thinking that's not a great performance oh i wish he could have done this like any fan does he should have done that but yeah. the fact that he was so brave to play other people's songs as well as as his own i mean that best of you version is great you know i think it's fantastic and um going into um rolling down the river that song as well then back uh, into 1999 it's yeah. just like genius and he's got that much confidence to say look i know these people aren't here just to see me right so i'm gonna throw some other americanisms in here some Jimi hendrix along watch how bob dylan you know uh, and it's just yeah looking back I, I watch it when i've seen what's happened since amazing performances and i've seen a lot of them uh, obviously because i always want to see if they're any good yeah but a lot of them rely on a lot of other things not just the music and the band there's a lot of other stuff which i get my god you've got people who don't even love you or like you watching you and some people that don't even know you watching you on your tv screen and in the audience yeah so it's a, it's bold you're gonna hate it no matter what and he just come out with that and again respect man respect for that he didn't bother with the dancers and stuff he's just like oh, i'm gonna do this we're gonna play it's gonna be great yeah and that's where he won. When he was live, man, with a guitar, piano, drums, whatever he played, whatever he did, you had to be there. I know people that went to see those 21 night performances. Some people were like, I didn't really want to go, but my wife wanted to go. My friends dragged me and I got a ticket. And they come out saying, fucking hell, that was the best thing I've ever seen. He did a whole lot of love. And, he, and I'm like, man, don't, you don't have to tell me. I used to come out of those gigs, man, so elated yeah. whenever I saw him. And I saw him about 20 old times. And I just come out elated, you know, whether he played drums or not, or whatever he did that night. You just felt lifted. Mm. It was kind of like, that's it. I've seen the light. That's the sort of musician I want to be. Yeah. Playing a bit of jazz, a bit of rock. And that, sorry, I'm going on a bit, but again like in his heyday being brave enough to play things like take the a train night in tunisia to a crowd i'm not saying his crowd was silly they weren't but some people that just wanted to hit he even uh. got and play jazz tunes or stratus by billy cobham like a <laughs> a jazz a jazz like fusion tune i mean the confidence to, to lay that and then play raspberry beret afterwards yeah but to lay those tunes on a, whether it be a stadium of like i don't know fifty thousand or a club of you know five thousand or whatever he had the confidence to say look i've got my catalog you're gonna get that but look, i'm into this other stuff as well and you just went with it you just went because if you saw the set list you might go oh i don't want to be around for that case of you Joni mitchell oh i don't want to be around for that but it was all presented in such a way that it was just 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 genius you, yeah. you, you know i know as i say i know people that hate the records but love the live stuff and i totally get that because i think we talked about that yeah i think once. the live stuff that i've heard definitely helps me then go back to the records and 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 it be um i just understood it a little more the first yeah. prince track other than of course you know everyone knows purple rain the first yeah, prince yeah. track that i really loved and this was some time before i 
invested because I've bought the 1999 reissue, I've bought the Purple Rain reissue, I've bought the Sign of the Times reissue. Oh, now, brilliant. Like, yeah, because sometimes, sometimes I feel like I have to spend a bit of money and then that helps you to yeah. it, that helps you to get there invest yeah because you've literally <laughs> invested and so I, then i you know i want to like it then if i've bought it and i find that helps. Yeah. um yeah. but it was uh, the track dear mr man oh the groove ah, yeah baby uh, <laughs> that's rare that's a kind of rare cut as they would say yeah yeah that's on musicology man that's a great tune that that's a good tune and that record was that that was kind of his resurgence uh though he'd always been making records but yeah you went back to Sony in 2004, and that's the last track on the album. Oh, no, there's one more after that. But, yeah, that's a great tune. And, again, that's showing a different side of him. That's like his, almost like his Gil Scott Heron or Marvin Gaye hat he puts on there for that sort of social. Tune. Yeah, it's, it's, it's social leadership in a way. Absolutely. And, yeah. again, I love the fact that he was, he was him and David Bowie and George Michael were pushing for their masters to be returned and all that. You know, he was part of that. You know, some, some things he did before the others, some things he, he did with them and stuff. And I just think, yeah, he, he was um, – he's a visionary that I think when more people – because so many people were a lot caught up in the Madonna thing, which was great, the Jackson thing, which was great. Um, and he sometimes got slightly put – because I grew up in that period, a bit yeah. like the Beatles with the dad saying they didn't like them. You know, a lot of my rock friends were like, oh, he's, you know, like this matters, but, oh, he's got to be gay. He wears those shoes. He's got a high voice. You know what people get like, you know, yeah. it's the worst side of people really. Um, and you say, well, okay, well, you should listen to this guitar solo because, yeah, he's wearing heels and makeup and he's spinning around doing that stuff. But listen to that guitar solo. That's as tough as anything you're listening to. Yeah. And they're like, Oh my God, you know, um, uh, and he was kind of a hard one to sell. And, uh, and in, in a way, you know, I, I regret that he wasn't more kind of uh, easier to digest, but that's kind of what made him cool. Yeah. You know, it was almost cool. And I know it seems a bit naff, but it was almost cool to like him. You know, when he went to Moles in uh, the 80s and stuff, and it was a members only club, you know, uh, Prince would be played a lot, you know, other stuff too, but he was always on a lot. And he's like, this is kind of cool. And then you go down to Shemmy's or something, another nightclub, and it'd be all the pop stuff, like Kylie and stuff. And you're like, oh, any Prince? Oh, not really. He's like, okay. <laughs> Fine. It was just weird. And there was that divide. Um, and you could either be like a Blur or Oasis, Michael Jackson, Prince, and Beatles or Stones. You can do both. Um, and I think one of the interesting things I, I remember a, a reviewer saying was, look, they're both great artists. You put Michael Jackson on in the daytime, but when you want to get down at night, you put on Prince. Wow. And I was yeah, kind yeah. of like, that's me. Because I love Michael. I love Off the Wall. I love, I'll always stand by that album. I don't like a lot of the later stuff, the stuff after that. But Off the Wall, I'll always stand by. I think it's a great record. Um, but he's right. You put yeah. Prince on to get down. Those grooves are a bit dirtier than um, Don't Stop Till You Get Enough. So that's kind of got a sexual connotation, but it's all very kind of pleasant. Your nan could dance to it. You know, you put on something like Get Off or Sexy Motherfucker. <laughs> and also, <laughs> scandal you know <laughs> but those grooves are deep set man he learned from those artists like james and yeah. he knew how to get those grooves down into your yeah yeah your talking nether of, regions talking of mj um have you heard tabloid junkie i haven't oh right okay that's one that's one to check out that's from history um, oh is it, was, it? Okay. it was one of the originals that was on history um okay yeah, when I got that new sound system I was telling you about, I thought, well, what's really well-produced music that's going to sound really... Yeah, and I well, thought, that well, I'll put a bit of MJ on, see how this, you know, pops out. You mentioned uh, Billy Cobham earlier. Yeah. I've got oh, yeah. one of his albums. I think, is it called Magic? Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's, that's, that's not a bad got, one, actually. That's got some um, some chops on it. 
Yeah, man. I mean, the one to get is, uh, it's around here somewhere. The, the, again, it's not a visual thing, is it? But uh, uh, I've got Spectrum, and that's right. the one with Stratus on it and uh, all the sort of Red Baron. They're the ones that most people, most jazz fusion bands would cover. They're the, like the singles, if you like. Yeah. Um, and, of course, the Massive Attack tune, you know, that do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do, Safe From Harm, right. that track. That's a, that's a loop from Stratus. You know, right. so that's how he got, he got extra sort of, Bunts from that, I should imagine. They did quite well. But Spectrum's a great record. And Crosswinds is another one. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, there's not much of that output. Again, his 80s output, like all of those jazz guys, suddenly gets all synthy. And, you know, sometimes people turn off from that, from the Wurlitzers and the Fender Rhodes and that sort of more 70s cool jazz thing, um, jazz fusion thing. But I kind of like it. I don't mind it. I don't mind hearing those moogs going away and all that sort of stuff. It doesn't bother me, actually. I, I quite like it because I like synth music anyway. I love Kraftwerk and Gary Newman. That's kind of where I started before the Beatles, really. That was my first thing. Yeah. That was, that was my go-to. That <laughs> latest Gary Newman stuff, My Name is Ruin, is amazing. It is amazing. He He... Man, he totally reinvented himself, you know, from that sort of stupid thing that he did, and he, he admits it was stupid, in 1981, saying he was retiring after three years of mega stardom, and then it crashing his planes, and all those poor things that happened to him that <laughs> made him a bit of a joke for a while, which he admits, and he went into a decline, and, you know, it's really sad, and it was just through his own kind of, like, I'm not good enough. Like we all do. I'm not good enough. I'm going to pull out. So he did this thing of retiring, but never really meaning to retire. So he did these two gigs in Wembley Arena, like or three nights or something, and sold out. And he said, that's it, I'm done for a while. But what people didn't pick up on was he said, for a while, I'm going to come back, work on my songwriting, work on my voice a bit more, and I'll come back and I'll feel more. Because again, he was another one that, you know, our friends Electric made it and he was like 18 or 17 or something. You know, he's really young and he was nervous and he had uh, performance issues and all sorts. And there he is on top of the pops and he's outselling Bowie, who's his idol. And all of a sudden he's this thing, you know, thankfully he made replicas, um, Pleasure Principle and Telecon, three massive albums. He was touring the world and he was massive. People forget, he was absolutely huge. But then, of course, then all the, he was reading the critics saying, oh, this guy's selling out, he's doing this and that. It's all synth stuff, it's not real music, which now is so daft when you think of what dance music became. Um, And he started to believe it. You know, his voice isn't very good, a bit electronic, there's a bit of Bowie in there, maybe too much. And, and it kind of did his head in, so he decided to retire and work on it all. Such a shame. But then he came back in 94 with all this new kind of stuff and, He's he's become a legend for a whole new era, a generation of kids, you know, and music lovers. And I think that's great because he deserves it because he, you know, like he was definitely, he was outselling and outcooling all of the people that he loved at that time. Yeah. He, he somehow condensed everything that Bowie had done on Low and Heroes, which is my favourite Bowie period, you know, that Berlin period, and all the other stuff like Human League and OMD, who were there before him. He sometimes somehow got all that stuff, plus the art house of Kraftwerk, and put it into two or three minute singles and just make it work. Yeah. You know, and whether you like it or not, it just worked. And, and he, he managed to do it for three or four years. And just, that was it. It was a massive star. Yeah. Just amazing. You know, and it's a shame that he had such a quick decline, you know, because of 
the press and people hounding him. And, and I think later on the press were like, yeah, we were bastards to him, actually. We shouldn't have done it. Because actually, we really like him now. And he, actually, he was actually quite good. He brought the stage show back when all the punk bands were like, no, nah, sod lights, we're coming out and doing it. Which yeah. was great, of course. You know, that had to happen. He said, I was the first one to bring back the stage show. But everyone either loved it or you were knocking me for it. I didn't know whether I was coming or going. Yeah. I loved it as a kid. I was only eight or nine. I never saw it, but I remember seeing it on TV thinking, it's the best thing I've ever seen. And his music was so futuristic. And um, I love that. And yeah. of course, through that, I did find Bowie and other things, which was just as well, you know, so I could see the the way the thread of the, the electro pop and crack rock and all that was going. And I yeah. got into it in Can and all that. But you've got to start somewhere. <laughs> and Gary Neiman was my in. Can <laughs> he was my post Cologne. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the Can stuff, man. I mean, it's all that stuff is like when I talked to Susie, when I was working with Susie, Susie Sue from the Banshee, she was just like, man, we grew up on that. Lou Reed and that. Obviously, she liked the Beatles as well and stuff, but she was like, that was the stuff that really turned us on to like Art House, what music could be, not just pop songs, but just something a bit different. And I love that. I think it's great. So I went out and bought all the Can albums and got completely, <laughs> got completely into it because I thought if, if Susie likes it and she's my boss, then I'll, I'll better be checking it out to see what. You know, because the drums are always really good in it. I kind of get the drummer's name now, which is really bad, isn't it? But my memory's not been great tonight, has it? But anyway. <laughs> I know, I think your recall ability is, is far from in question. Right, you've mentioned, <laughs> you've mentioned Susie Sue. I think now would be a good time to... We're going to put a pin in the, in, the, um, in the music gush love chat. Um, okay. Music gush love chat. Er, matron. Um, <laughs> and, uh, okay, I'm going to read some names out to you. Peter Gabriel. Okay. Yep. Andy Partridge, oh. Goldfrapp, yep. Simple Minds, formerly uh, Johnny and the Self Abusers. Just going to throw that one out there. That's right. You're uh, right. Miles Kane, Susie Sue, Lorena McKennett, and uh, how do you say it? Uh, Ines, um, Ines. Ines Cybern. That's the one. Ines Cybern. You Ines are Cybern. a professional drummer, clinician, um, session drummer. Uh, what else? What else would you like to add to your resume? Oh man, just just musician, all time fun person, curator <laughs> of symbols, curator of groove, writer yeah. for Riven Mag, <laughs> yeah, and modern drummer. I've done and a few of those drummer. things, and yeah. So tell me where that's. Well, tell me where that begins for you. Is it does it begin with Ringo and Steady Now? <laughs> uh, did you say Ringo? Uh, uh, it, it started, um, no, it started with uh, Top of the Pops, you know, classic Thursday night thing, watching Blondie, The Police, The Stranglers, all those bands. And then a name that I mentioned earlier, Gary Newman came on. And for some reason, I mean, the drums are in it, but they're very metronomic. You know, they're like more drum machine-like before he was using drum machines. Uh so it wasn't that. It was just the look of him, the sound of those synths on Our Friends Electric, which still sound amazing now. The way She Loves You pops through the speakers, the way Our Friends Electric pops through the speakers is just as exciting as the day I heard it. Um, and it's still as ballsy. And that was it. I was a Gary Newman fan. Uh, so I tried keyboards. I tried guitar. And we're talking Woolworth guitars. Right. <laughs> we're not talking Fenders, right? <laughs> we're talking Woolworth Bon Tempe keyboards, one finger job, which is kind of like what he was doing, you know. Uh, but then my dad was a drummer right. uh, and my mum was a lover of music. She was into her Carpenters, Beatles, Elvis, Beach Boys, pop side. My dad and, and musicals. My dad was into jazz, rock fusion. 
So I could have a Barry White record from Dad. I could have a Deep Purple record. I could have a, a, a Jose Feliciano record. I could have a Miles Davis, a Buddy Rich, you know, a Beatles, uh, Average White Band, Herbie Hancock. You know, there was all yeah. that stuff. So with, between the two rooms, Mum in the kitchen with a radio and Dad in the room with a stereo, um, on a Sunday morning, I've told this story so many times, but I could stand in our hallway. On my left, I get the jazzy stuff. On my right, with the muso stuff. And on my right, I get the harmony stuff of my mum's radio. You know, yeah. and both of it, sank in and as yeah. i said earlier uh, john lennon was shot in 80 i went to school that day all the teachers were crying and i'm like what's going on what's happened what's happened i don't know they in the assembly they explain it play some records go home that night help comes on the tv as a tribute i go out and buy the help album that weekend i'm a beatles fan that is mad <laughs> that that they hold an assembly to break it to the kids that john lennon's dead the teachers are crying this is they play the music you, the bbc wipes its program scheduled program for the night yeah and does tributes that is the the king is dead it it was it was so f- weird because i've shared this story with other drummers of mine and they go oh i know what you're gonna say teachers were crying I'm like, yeah did you have the assembly yeah we had the assembly and it's not just like one sort of did, did that actually happen it a lot of people did this in a lot of schools because it was like, why are you all crying? Like, I don't know who this guy is. Like yeah. I say, I knew about the monkeys because they were on Swap Shop, you know? I know they were from the 60s, but they're still being repeated. Yeah. So I was like, oh, I like this band, this zany band, having no idea they were based on the Beatles. I didn't know who the Beatles were. I probably heard them on the radio, but my mum, side of the kitchen, you know, I, of the house, I had no idea. Um, they didn't live apart, by the way, but they were just in. <laughs> those were the rooms they were in. Um, they all lived in the same house. But uh, but yeah, and it was, it was one of those moments. And... Um, then I fell in love with 60s music, you know, Beatles mostly, but then I learned about that. And then eventually, um, you know, I thought, I want to play the drums. I love this. So uh, dad was a drummer, uh, but he, he was about to sell his drum kit. I didn't know this, but I found some drumsticks and thought, oh, this is cool. I like this. I like this. I've seen this on TV. Um, and he said, look, if you, do you want to play the drums? Like, seriously? And I was like, oh, I don't know. I, I kind of, it's all right. I don't know. He said, well, decide, because I've got a kit a double bass drum kit at that point. He was a jazz drummer, but when he retired, he said, I'm going to have a double bass drum kit, premier kit, Beverly it was. I'm going to have a double bass drum kit, so I've got all the drums I want. I said, no, you're all right. So, but then, of course, you know, a few weeks later, I was like, maybe it's months, no one can really remember. He right. was like, Dad, I want to play drums. And apparently Mum said he wasn't very happy because he just got rid of this big fat kit. <laughs> um, so he bought me just a practice pad, like the old fa- uh, fashion wedged ones, right. which are for people that play traditional grips. So they're, they're angled down, like right. a door wedge, you know, so you get that angle. Yeah. He said, you're going to start on that. I'm going to start you off and you're not going to have a kit. And I was like, oh, Dad, but people at school, no, if you're going to do it properly... You have the practice pad. You're going to learn to read the music and we're going to do it properly. I was like, oh, all right. And then every now and again, I'll be playing along to a Gary Newman record upstairs. I say, dad, can you come in? He'd be like, oh, I don't like this. I'll say, what's he playing? He said, well, something like this. And he'd bang it on the floor and stuff, you know. I'd be like, okay. And then he'd come home with another rudiment book, son. Check that out. Let's go through your three-stroke rough, all your roughs. And they said, I'm going to buy you a bass drum pedal. I was like, oh, about bloody time. So he bought me a bass drum pedal. So I then, we're talking like six months to eight months i've now got a, 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 this pad my music book that he's writing out for me plus my bass drum pedal that i had on a living room chair put on the its side so that the bit you sit on was facing me and i play the beater on that <laughs> you, and the back of it was knocking on my leg yeah. you know because obviously i had it just literally pulled it forward so it was down on the floor so that was my basic drum kit and i just and then eventually uh, i think it was 81 he bought me 
a little premier jazz kit, a resonator. Right. And there's a picture of me somewhere online. I've got my Gary Newman fan club tie and a black <laughs> top. And it must have been 81 because it's the John Lennon collection, which came out in 81. I've put in my bass drum. So like on my bass drum, but the album on, which I've still got on the bass, in the bass drum. So right. uh, on the bass drum skin in the, you know, between the tuning pegs. Um, and that was it. And then it was playing at school in the wind band. I didn't really enjoy. And I actually found quite early on, even though I can read music, even obviously to this day and I teach it and everything, but I never actually liked that formal side of it as much. There was, just, uh, and remember the teacher saying, yes, you're very good and everything, but you know, you have to. And I was like, yeah, no, I totally get it. You know, but there was something about, and even to this day, when people ask me to do pit orchestra gigs or shows, I tend to back off. I get nervous. I don't like that. I don't know what it is because I can do it. Like everyone says, you can do it. Like Mark Whitlam says, you can do it. Like just do it. What are you talking about? You can read. Yeah. I just don't enjoy it. I just don't enjoy that experience. Yeah. I like I like being part of the creation of it. I don't like just being sat in there. Drummer, music, go. I don't like that. It's not where I shine. People like Mark can do that, and he plays brilliantly, and he can read. You know, like bloody fly shit on toilet paper he could he could he could play anything right you know he's a genius in many ways um and he can play the other stuff too but you know my strength is the other stuff i I don't hence why i work um with a lot of music music musicians and music that isn't kind of written out it's kind of like you come in and make my stuff happen for me as a drummer i want you to come and make this thing happen um whether it be my old catalogue like Susie and a lot of the artists have got back catalogue, obviously, um, or whether it's the new stuff, come in and, and play. I want your vibe on this because I know you can do what you can do. Been well recommended. You've got a CV. Let's have you on it. I think you'd be the right person for the job. And that's where I come alive. And uh, thankfully, I've made my career in that rather than having to stay in a pit or in a, you know, which is, as I said, nothing wrong with it. It's just not where I, I think I'm best vibe. suited. Yeah. It's not my vibe. And I walk away with the money in my pocket or it's being transferred, whatever. And I get in my car and I'm sort of like, I didn't want to do that. I've got the money, which we all need. Yeah. It was nice to meet some great musicians and play. Of course, that's a lovely thing. But actually, am I happy doing this? And I realised, as I say, really early, that wasn't my gig. Right. So I don't, I don't do it. So thankfully, it turned out that I could do my other side of this, creative playing, expressive playing, whatever, and I could make a career from that. And I'm, I'm just so thankful, you know, and that's what I strived to do. And all the musicians I've talked about already, you know, they, they all kind of, I was inspired by their way of keeping moving forward, learn the different styles. Again, dad got me into jazz, mum loved all that pop. So I had both of that and I loved both equally as much. So I could sit down when I was a lot older, play a jazz fusion thing, odd time stuff. Yeah, I love, yes, and prog rock. Let's do that, I can do that. And then someone say, right, uh, we're going to do, we've only just begun by the Carpenters. I say, yeah, I know exactly. I know the drum fill at the start. I know the dynamic. I'm happy doing both. And none of it to me is cheese. To me, there are no guilty pleasures. It's all part of the big picture for me. I don't want to have that because to me, if I close off my love of the Carpenters or my love of whatever, then I'm closing off a whole lot of, music and stuff i can yeah. add into my playing and bring to somebody else you know i've been meaning to pick up the carpenter's uh gold is it yes just to collection um, yeah just to listen knowing that she's singing and drumming at the same time and yeah i appreciate that i don't feel like i necessarily need um you know why do birds suddenly <laughs> i'm not sure I, that's what i need in my life but i know what you're saying i know what you're but saying. i yeah, I'm, I'm open to um, finding some gems in there for sure. The, not that there that's are a some, bad song. It's a genius 
genius lyrics and reason it's so iconic but it is it's beautiful but yeah you're right that uh, not all of the output is um you know um as stellar as what's going to be on the gold collection there's a lot of you know middle of the road and i know it's subjective but for me it's a lot of middle of the road treading water till you get to the next classic and you're like whoa so on one album you might get a bit like the police really their albums are sketchy but when you get to the good bits they're great yeah (laughs) but then there's some bits like canary in a coal mine you think really is that such a great song (laughs) but it kind of is but you know what i'm saying They're, they're kind of patchy but it's subjective but yeah I'm with you on that. I think getting a collection of the Carpenters is probably a good way to go. I've never been a fan of the Best of Five. It's a bit like Alan Partridge when he says, "Oh, Alan, what's your favourite Beatles record?" <laughs> I'd have to say the Best of the Beatles. <laughs> it's kind of like that, you know. But um, but with the Carpenters, yeah, I think probably a good double album gold collection of Carpenters material is probably all the good stuff yeah. in one place. Sometimes that's what I do when I'm I'm interested in a band. I want to know, I want to get an overview of the career. And if I mm. like it from then, I'm diving in with the yeah, with, with the both, hyper-focus. Um, yeah, and with both feet. Yeah. You, you go in both feet. But sometimes you you don't want to make that investment. And, so, and, 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 and sometimes the greatest hits is enough. Like yeah, there's a guy yeah. I love called Ellis Paul, and he's a folky, uh, folky guy. Right, and he did a I really nice. Name, so. um, he did the he did the soundtrack for me, myself, and Irene. Um, oh, maybe it's that I know. From. Yeah, I just know the name. There's one of the tracks on it. I can't remember which one it is. Sweet mistakes or the world ain't slowing down. Anyway, he's got a greatest hits, and it's great and it's fine. And I've tried his other albums. And I'm sure they're they're good, but there's you know I'm just good with that essential collection. And you know yeah. sometimes I think about expanding off into it, but. I don't know, sometimes you just feel like, no, nah, I've got this one, and I feel like this is as far as I'm going with this. Um, yeah. Maybe that's a bad that's... choice, actually, because I quite like him. But <laughs> <laughs> Well, the nice thing about Spotify now is you can go and have a little delve, can't you? You can have yeah. a delve about the place. And if you like it, you can go down Rave in the Grave and buy the vinyl or whatever you do. Well, not now, but yeah. obviously, but in the pandemic. But, um, yeah, I, I think it's a good thing. As much as I don't like streaming music and... Uh, you know, that's a whole other debate. Go on, have isn't a rant. It? Go on. No, 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 I don't want to. Because I thought about that today as well. And I thought, no. I mean, we've got enough problems in life and it's already happened. It's done. There's no, it's no point crying over spilt milk, you know. But I think the only thing that does get to me <laughs> is just, it, it, it's just, uh, which kind of it started in a way, is just, and I had to watch The Masked Singer the other night for my little boy, which is fine. But I don't know. Being in the industry and stuff, like we all are, we're all musicians, and no matter what, what end of it you're in, you're still in it. Um, if you love music like that and you perform, it's just how kind of sometimes, and I know people go, oh, off they go, but how, how it kind of belittles the the whole creation of everything, you know. And I get it, music for some people is literally just background, and I that's fine, okay, totally cool. Um, but, you know, if... if I say to people, if what, what do you do? Some mechanic, right? Okay, so I'm going to come and I'm going to watch you fix a car, and I'm going to say, oh, somebody else does it better than you. Oh, is that really what you do there? Oh, you're rubbish at that, you know. And you say, what do you know? I would say, ah, right. So what do you know about music? What right have you got to say? <laughs> now I, know, I said it's subjective, yeah. but no. The, what I mean is for the people that really become armchair critics and think they know because of shows like 
Um, you know, that singing show, I can't think which one it X is. Factor, but... The Voice. Yeah, thank you. See, I don't even watch them, but all of a sudden, I've got people telling me what they think is good or bad about a singer. Again, why not? I get that, but it's just like, okay, well, I'm going to come to what you do, and I'm going to sit and watch you do something, and I'm going to do the same thing to you. How would you like it? And I've got, yeah, but you don't know what I do. You don't know what I do. Yeah. But because it's music, we can all say it's good or it's crap. And again, I'm not saying that's bad. This is, but it's like a double-edged thing. What it's done is just made people sort of respect for music. Is what I'm trying to get at. Is maybe not as not as much as when they had to buy it, mm. you know, um, over the counter, actually part with hard cash rather yeah. than just click download for 99p for a single off of an album, all that kind of stuff. It's, and it's an old argument, but I think it's valid. And, yeah. I, and I, as the older I get, I think it, it, it's true. It's kind of. It's it's made it harder for younger artists. Also, the internet, all right, has made it easier in other ways. But you know, the thing is, you can you can have careers on the back of no label, none of this. But in a way, you know, you don't really get on the back end of a London bus or on the side of a building unless you unfortunately play the game with the record company. They still hold the cards, you know. Yeah. Um, all right, it's a lot easier for us now. And I'm not saying they had it was uh, the right m- model of business then. It probably wasn't. There's a there's a there's a line in between that has to be met, and it never did. It went straight over to this other side, and I think now we're trying to get it back to a middle ground. If we don't want to go back to them holding everything, yeah. we don't complete freedom because we we can't get to where we want to go completely with that freedom of music. Yes, obviously, yeah. but we need you to help us, but don't govern us for the next twenty five years. Known everything, there has to be a, yeah. a middle ground. With your three sixty deals and your your five album deals or whatever it is, eight album yeah. Deals. Yeah, there has to be some some meeting of the two. And I don't know if it'll ever happen because we're still just rambling on and it's still But yeah, I I that that that's the one thing that get you know, grinds there's, my gears. That. There's no emotional <laughs> investment with Spotify. No, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, like like you said, you know, you're so sur- surrounded by records there. I'm also where I am, surrounded by records. And I think, well, you know, I've got Spotify, I have the world's biggest record collection on my phone, and it sounds great. Okay, it's not high-res audio, but it sounds fucking good. Yeah, like, it does. What they've yeah. managed to do with a 320 MP3 is pretty pretty good, to be honest. Yes. Um, but why do I still buy these things? I, and, and, <laughs> and, and, you know, I've got, I've got CDs in there that I buy that show up sealed, and they're still sealed. Yeah, I've got you that. Yeah. I've got vinyl like and that. I'm, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I'm streaming it. So why am I buying it? Phil Collins doesn't need my money, you know? Um, yeah. The Grateful Dead don't need my money, you know? No. But I buy it no. and I stick it in the collection and, I, and then I stream it. And I think I buy it because, one, I've got a, an iPod, so I do put stuff on the iPod. Um, so I will unwrap it and, and rip it in if if it's not already in my iTunes. But... Right, right. I think it's because it's a part of you, isn't it? It becomes a part yeah. of it's a, it's self for me. Part of my my record collection is that it's like if you come and see my record collection, I'm that's sort of my heart is on my sleeve slightly there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I love that. I love I love going to people's houses, and I, I love when they say, "We don't look at that bit." The, I used to the... love going to people's houses. Well, yeah, actually, yeah, I should say I don't go to anyone's houses. I just look through people's windows. That's even more dodgy. <laughs> 
Um, but yeah, when you did, they'd be like, don't go to that, that end down there. That's the dusty end. Don't go down to that part of the record. I go, no, that's the fun bit. I want to see what you've got down here. And yeah. I don't care what it is. You know, my one jazz album is, um, you know, the best jazz party album ever. I thought, well, I don't care. At least yeah. you've got a jazz record. All right, it's not, you know, I could sit here and say Get Kind of Blue or Take Five or whatever. Some albums you might just like straight off the bat. Coffee table jazz albums that are still classics. But yeah, if you've got a best off, well, so what? You know, I don't yeah. mind that. I think it's it's great, you know, and you don't sort of get that when someone says, oh, that's all on my phone. You can't really, well, I don't want to look at your phone. Like, there's yeah. no fun in looking at your phone. That's a bit weird. Like, you know, <laughs> I'm not going to get into that, you know. Um, and yeah, I just, uh, that used to be a thing for me, was at uh, parties. I think all musicians, if it was a bit like dull, go and look at their records, go look at their CDs, you know. Um, and it, it just shows someone's personality, and I love that. And I, as I say, no guilty pleasures. I say to people, there's no guilty pleasure. I don't care what you've got on that rack over there, that's fine, you know. Whatever yeah. I'm going to look at in your cupboard of dr- of music, I'm going to love it all. It's great, you know. It's it's about you. It says a lot about who you are. One thing I can never understand is that some people you ask them what they're into. So it might in my in my sort of nine to five, it's customer service. So I say, oh, uh, you know, if I notice they've been for a run, they have got some headphones on, or or they say oh, I'm decorating, or I'm going to go clean. I will right. always always say, oh, what are you listening to, or uh, what, what's the soundtrack to your decorating what's going on like because it yeah. does let you it lets you know kind of who they are and stuff and and sometimes their answers surprise you and and often i will give people i'll write i'll jot something down and be like yo i think you'll really like this album you know Great. And, and, that's and, brilliant and, but sometimes you get the people that and that is good you get the people that are so insecure about it and yeah. so shy they will not tell you oh it's so i know you wouldn't like it exactly you know? and it yeah uh, and and it really annoys me because it's like I will listen to Blue featuring Elton John and love it. I love Take That. Yeah, I, you know, great songs. And, and yeah, great, great pop songs. Let's, they let's are. not go on that tangent, but we could go on that tangent for twenty minutes. I think absolutely. We could, um, yeah, but any, but any tangent. <laughs> and it's like, you know, just tell me. Come on, just tell me. What is it yeah. that you like? You know, it could be it, that you only listen to the Mr. Blobby single or whatever. <laughs> I mean, like... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Postman Pat, yeah. yeah. What, what makes it worse is when they know you're a musician. That puts their guard up even more. Right. Yeah, you like know? I'm going to say, that's crap. You're an idiot. This like, is I'd it. ever do that. <laughs> when, I meet, when I meet people at parties, you know, when we did... Uh, or wherever, and they you're talking about stuff, and you're shooting the breeze before they know what you've done, or if, you've, if there's any gravitas to what you've done or anything, you know, because that changes things as well. You just say one thing, like, oh, you know, it's like well, I'm stood in front of you talking to you. Like, why should I saying I've done Jonathan Ross or later with Jules Holland have any bearing on our conversation? Why? Yeah. Because celebrity, you know, people have this it thing. Does. It does. So, so I'm not going to talk to you about my music now. Or they come up to me afterwards and tap my arm and say, you never told me you knew about music. I said, well, I, I'm just a musician. Yeah, but I said to you, I like that stuff. You must think I'm all right. Not bad now. It's like, no, I don't. <laughs> I, love, I love the fact that you told me that you love, you know, like Blue or, or whatever, you know. I love it. Why would I knock it? I'm not that musician. Some guys would be going, oh, yeah, but you need to listen to uh, so-and-so. Um, I'm not that musician. You know, I yeah. never have been. Um, uh, and, you know, even when I'm teaching, I, I try so hard not to patronise students about stuff you know it's such a it's such a fine line especially as you get older it's so difficult you know but i try really hard to be open about everything yes personally i know what i like and stuff but mm. i try and keep the gates wide open for influence like i said earlier about the drumming thing you have to i think as a musician some don't and i again that's their journey fine 
I'm kind of not that person. I'm really open to it all. Uh, whether I buy it is a different thing. Yeah. Know, I'm not saying I'm going to buy everything and I'm not going to buy into everything. But if you say, you know, you, you like the mass thing, and like I said to my son the other night, great, let's watch it. Okay. I'm sat there going, yeah. oh, I don't really like this, but hey, you know, yeah. okay. <laughs> this is how music's being presented on a Saturday night and people, you know, this character Badger suddenly goes into um, Smells Like Teen Spirit. I was sat there going... <laughs> no Kurt Cobain and I was like well no I can't be that person tonight I have to be a different person yeah. but inside I was dying and I was thinking like what is going on with this classic music and any music why are we doing this to it cheapening it to this level you yeah. know but anyway but we could go on about that for hours but yeah that kind of it, that kind, that's the thing I find confusing but I certainly don't I never try and belittle somebody on, on it. I think that's just that's just being a bad person, I think. I don't think that's that's very cool. Laughing at people. You do that when you're a kid in the schoolyard and you learn that that's not the way to behave when you're a bit older. Yeah. Oh yeah, man United are crap, you know, Liverpool are crap, Gary Newman's rubbish, you know, and all that. You you do that as a kid and it's just such a stupid thing, but it's a growing learning process. When you do that as a forty year old man or a thirty year old man or twenty year old human i just think it's that's not the way you should behave yeah that's why we've got all these problems in the world but anyway whatever yeah <laughs> it doesn't endear you to anyone does it not really it, it just shows this closed-mindedness but let's not get into politics but yeah it's that kind of thing and oh, it's a shame so you get given your kit and you get pretty good at it yeah and you uh, become a big student of it well, I did, and then I, I went out gigging when that was a thing, um, and I went to music shops, and I put my card up in a music shop, and I went to drum shops and hung about and got to, got to eventually work in a music shop in Bath, in Assembly Music, which was in Widcombe, uh, and then they had a shop, but they all, a retail shop, but they also distributed out on the Windsor Bridge, um, which is like a 10-minute, 50-minute car ride from there, which is out by Sainsbury's, sort of out that way uh, in Bath, that um, Windsor Bridge Trading Estate. They had a, a, a warehouse where they shipped all the Sonor drums for England. Right. They had the distribution for Sonor. Now, of course, we think it should be in Milton Keynes or London. It was in Bath, you know, because Steve had imported Sonor drums from Germany since the 60s when Ducks and Pinkers were still in Bath. They had a drum department, which they did later on as well, of course, uh, but he ran the drum department. So they said eventually, do you want to bring these things in, be the distributor. So I had experience in the shop, stringing guitars and dealing with customers and selling some drums, uh, but also dealing with the endorsers. So Chester Thompson would come down and all these people would come to the warehouse. And I was an 18-year-old, 19-year-old kid meeting all these people. I met Bob Zildjian. I remember Bob Zildjian came down and uh, Steve said, Bob wants to spend the afternoon with you sort of talking about symbols. Because my role, Ken Dewar, um, who's a lovely guy still in the industry and still plays, we did a session at Rockfield just last year um, before lockdown happened again. Um, he was the main wear ice man and I was the next one down. And then there was a sort of YTS guy under me. Um, we used to have a ball out there working, shipping the stuff around and going to London, dropping gear off and stuff for reviewing. And also, um, uh, what was I saying? Yeah. So this one time he said, right, Rob, you know, Bob Zildjian's coming to town and he wants to take you to the wear ice and he wants to talk to you. We had a symbol vault. Big door on it, go in, racks of symbols, all Sabian, right. which is right. which was Bob Zildjian's thing, because Bob Zildjian and the other Zildjian brother, I can't give his name now, split. So Zildjian went one way and he made Sabian. Um, and it's a bit of a bad split. Anyway, so he was like, Rob, you know, I'm going to show you how to pick a symbol, man. And what have you been saying to the cats when they come in and all that? And anyway, I spent the afternoon with him at 18 and 
I'm in a room with Bob Zildjian. Like, it's, <laughs> it's, it's like, what? Yeah. And he's saying, okay, so what do you say when a guy wants a certain sign? And he was, and thankfully I wasn't too far off the bat because Ken was a great teacher, so, and so was Steve. And I'd learned from my dad certain things. But then I'm in there with Bob Zildjian, like, the closest thing to symbol God, so yeah. the closest thing to Gene Krupa, Buddy Rich, all these people that were, as well as the younger guys as well. But those were like, my God, this guy's been in the same room. This is he's the insane. old guard. Yeah, it is. It's like the real old school. This is it. Um, and that experience, and I've never forgotten it. Um, and I've passed that on to other people as well. So I'm dealing with that, meeting Chester Thompson and all these sort of guys, going to a Phil Collins rehearsal, though I didn't meet Phil Collins, you know, with a sonal kit for Chester Thompson, Jack Dejeunet, all these drummers. And I'm going up there as this spotty little kid with Ken to deliver the gear, you know, and it was just, it was incredible going to the trade shows. And what an experience. And all the time, I'm still gigging at night at Bath, uh, in Bath at the Bell or Moles Club um, or the Hat and Feather. It was a bit of a dodgy place, but that's gone now. It's a wine bar or steak place. So all these gigs um, and in Bristol. And I was playing jazz. I was playing indie sort of, well, I say indie, sort of REM type stuff at the time. Yeah, with the band rock. The Deep Six doing that. I was, yeah, and I was doing um, goth rock as well with a band called The Rose Garden from Chippenham where we'd wear these big long Macs and cover ourselves in talcum powder, man, before we went on stage. <laughs> so we looked like we just stepped out the crypt, like Fields of the Nephilim. They were one of our favourite bands and um, The Cure and The Cult, you know, we were into all that. Yeah. I was playing the, the Love album by um, the, the, the Cult all the time and Head on the Door by The Cure yeah. was another one. Um, I still love yeah, I still love those records now. And Susie actually back then, but not as much. Um, right. And then I ended up working with it. And then it just working at local studios and just the name went round. Rob Ryan's all right. He does this, he does that. Um, and the jazz gigs brought in the money, like not much, but maybe 30, 40 quid. They're not much different now. But, you know, I was earning that sort of money. But then I was working with the indie group, making no money. Yeah. We made, made an EP and had a few things released, playing around London, but making no money. Um, and then the lead singer, Andy West, who ended up teaching uh, a, a music song, a songwriting at Bath by Uni, and now he's up in Leeds, I think, uh, was friends with Hugh Cornwell from The Stranglers. And Hugh had just left. The Stranglers in 1990-91, and he wanted to do something different. So he got together with Andy. They were drinking pals uh, at the Swan, I think it was, uh, uh, by the golf course. I don't remember, maybe I shouldn't say that, but uh, anyway. Um, uh, <laughs> and then Roger Cook, who was a country singer, songwriter, in a band called the Blue, uh, Blue Mink. And they did, I'd like to teach the world to sing in perfect harmony in oh, the 60s, right. which Big became song. a Coke advert through the 70s, and he made an absolute fortune. But he's written lots of tunes. He's a Nashville writer. and he So we did, had this band called CCW, Cornwall, Cook and West, and the album is up there on the wall. Uh, and Herbie Flowers was on bass, and I'm a spotty little kid, and I'm coming in and I'm playing drums on a few of the tracks. And that ended up being a live gig, and from there... Hugh knew Cody Mundy, who had just left Kid Crow and the Coconuts. So I got to tour with Cody. And Cody isn't the main singer. That's Angus Darnell, I think his name is. He's got the hat on. He's like the kid. He, uh, Cody's the guy at the side doing all the sort of dancing and playing congas and all the stuff. He's still got a zoot suit on, but he's the other fella playing vibes and stuff. But right. he was kind of the brains of the operation. Um, so I worked with Cody and I learned a lot. He knew Prince. He knew all these people. I was just like, you know, this is amazing. And, it, and on his stage show, he used to do a song called Boxed Out, right? Which is like a real sort of deep kind of groove thing. And um, I, he knew I loved Prince. And he had this whole theatric thing where he'd 
after the song, you know, through the song, he'd be putting on his, his shorts and he'd be putting on his gloves and he has the towel. And he, so we'd play this like, and he'd like, I'm boxed out. And he'd go into the audience, I'm coming to get you. And he'd jump off the, the stage, right? And he'd go out and he'd start <laughs> sparring with the audience. And right. he'd have all these things, just like James Brown and Prince, where he'd turn around and make a signal. And we'd have to be like, duh, 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 duh. And then we'd all have to freeze again. I was so into Prince doing all that. So I was totally down for this. So we was waiting and they'd just stand there and he'd be like, boom. And when his fist came down with his glove, he'd have to come back in. <laughs> and there's other moves as well. There'd be like some stops and, uh, and, and the tr- cr- crotchet triplets. And if he was like a certain one, he'd have to go again. I mean, rehearsing this stuff. He'd be like, no, no, I didn't do the move. And I was, man, it was all about the move. But he taught me a lot about the theatrics. I was already in because of the Prince James Brown thing completely anyway. But, yeah. man, that was a good thing. And then from there, the guitarist in that band um, was in a, just joined a 4AD band from, from the sort of late 70s, early 80s called um, uh, Modern English. And I just posted a thing on Facebook today of, of me playing with them in American TV. So in 1996, I did the album with them and toured America, which was kind of a whirlwind of good and bad. Um, but that was brilliant. We did that. Uh, and then from there, I took a little bit of time out. But then the Peter Gabriel session came up. It was only a session, but it was it was absolutely amazing. And then from doing that, something else came up. And wait, then... wait, 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 Peter Gabriel, Peter Gabriel, back up, back up, back <laughs> I, up. I know. I mean, Come I on, wish tell I me could, about this. I wish I could say it was a tour. I wish I could say it was the whole album. I, wish, I could say it was a TV thing. I'm at home, right in Corsham, yeah. on a s- Sunday afternoon. Mm get a phone call from a friend of mine i think it was matt sibley or was it the bass player i can't remember one of the the jazzers right anyway so i get this call and i swear to god they never said anything they said are you free tomorrow i said yeah i'm free tomorrow uh we got a session at real world i went shit well yeah great man (laughs) great he said yeah can, can you do it i said well i think i had some teaching or something i said but you know i'll Say that I'm sick or something. You know. Yeah, I mean we're about thirty years on, so any people who listen to this, sorry, <laughs> you didn't get your lesson that day. So sorry, Peter Gabriel was calling. Yeah, Peter Gabriel was calling. If you want to sack me, well, that's fine. Now it's fine. <laughs> From whichever school in Froome I was teaching at at the time, you know, just drum teaching, not full class teaching. Um, and I said, yeah, I'll be there. So I had a beaten up old Escort, which gold, which was, um, but, but oh, was a car. It was right, blue. Okay. Sorry, it was blue. <laughs> It was an X's that was gold. Uh, it was blue. And um, it was always breaking down on me. Uh, anyway, I got the drums in the back, my little sonor jazz kicks. I was a sonor guy at that time. Right. I drove down to Real World. I'd only been there once before, I think. Bit nervous. I've been there delivering sonor drums with Ken from Sonor. Right. Uh, but anyway, I, I went up and I, found, I saw the sign that says office. I went in and I went, um, hi, I'm here for the session today. And they said, oh, right, okay. Um, where are you parked? And I said, well, I don't even really know... It's weird. I said it's with my friends who were a jazz quartet. And she said, oh, that's with Peter. But I didn't think anything of it. Mm. And I went, great, cool. She said, well, where are you parked? I said, well, I just... I said, okay, well, um, if you want to get a coffee, we'll get someone to take the drums in. And, and I was like, take the drums in? I do that. Like, <laughs> what? <do> you, what? <laughs> like, I don't, she said, well, you know, just grab a few. But someone, if you go and have a coffee, and I'll, t- I'll show you where we're going, going up around the back to, the, to, to, to Peter's writing room. So we go past the kitchen and we go up past the... the and that's that little summer house spot, isn't it? That's right. It's at the back, yeah. I've been in there. Oh, um, what a room, right? And it's... Uh, um, it, it was... Uh, there was master tapes from um, from New York's uh, record um, 
recording studios. What's that famous one in uh, the record plant? The record plant so, with Robert Fripp's name on it, producing and stuff. It was Man. just this. It was like, almost like a little museum of his. And it was supposed yeah. to be his little little haven, wasn't it, of writing yeah. in his little space. And it's it, really, it, really amazing. Isn't it beautiful? It's like a, a wonderland in there. It's just yeah. slightly, it's close to the studio, but just far enough away that it just feels like you're in the middle of nowhere. That's the studio that Beyonce used, I think, when she was, was it? Uh, when she was there. Ooh. And uh, what's his, what's the, what was his bass player's name? The the, the bold chap. Oh, yeah, uh, Tony Levin. Tony Levin's, um, one of his um, upright basses was just sort of like sat in the corner that he'd used on a really Like it would be. Yeah, it was just, <laughs> it was just there. It was really like a moment of like, wow, this is great. Well, it was that room, man, and I and I was setting my sonal kit up, and it was I hadn't seen him in the limelight for a while, um, and he'd started to grow the beard and was a bit, but larger than normal. You know, he's enjoying life. You know, um, and he came in. He had this long, sort of white, sort of Afghani type, well, just like a robe thing on, like mm. summer thing, you know, with sandals. Like a Jesus robe, you could say, or something. You know, don't want to say that, but it's that kind of. Uh, and yeah. he walked in, and he and he was, and I looked up, and of course, he's a hero of mine. I mean, I've talked about some other people, but P, um, Peter Gabriel is one of those names that I loved his music from a kid. Like sixteen years old, I knew Sledgehammer. I knew a bit of early Genesis from my friends who were kind of nerdy proggers like me, um, and I loved it. And I just loved every album, and I just thought it was exciting. The drums were great, the drum machine program was great, the instrumentation, everything. I loved it. His voice. Then the next minute I'm looking up and he's he's there, you know, and yeah. he goes, he's like, hi, uh, I'm Peter. I said, yeah. I felt like I said, I know, but I was like, oh, yeah, nice to you. So what's your name? I said, yeah, I'm Rob, you know. Um, and he said, nice drums. Sonal make nice drums. He said, we've we've got a few few here. Um, Manu's used them a few times, even though he's a Yamaha guy, but we've got a few. I said, I know, we've, we delivered them here years ago. We went, he looked confused. I said, well, I used to work for Sonal back in the day and we delivered here. And I said, you came into the shop and bought in Assembly Music, I bought a kit for your son once, you know. Uh, and he was, oh, blimey. I said, yeah, yeah. I said, I just remember these things, you know. He said, oh, great, well, great to have you. And he sort of went in and I thought, wow, I've met the owner of the studio. You know, this is great. And he was talking to everyone and I still hadn't got it, right? <laughs> so, of course, he then is stood next in the main control room with a micro, or slightly off in a booth that I can't quite remember. I'd be lying. I knew I was behind the screen anyway. Yeah. And um, he was putting headphones on. <laughs> and he was talking and I had mine on. And I was like, what the fuck? What's going like, on? And he's, and he's singing in my headphones. And right. I'm like, what? And um, the bass player sort of came and said, didn't I tell you? And I said, no one told me. He said, yeah, we're doing, he wants to do some jazz stuff. And I was like, what? This is insane. Oh, and he's like, man. yeah, yeah, it'll be, it'll be fine. And we're doing, the, I can't remember what standards now. One right. of the band members is possibly has some recording of it, but I don't think right. he has. Um, yeah. But, you know, I wish I had something of it, a memento, though it would be naughty to have it, but I would love to have a memento just for that. I would never do anything with it, you know, and I'm sure it has been bootlegged, probably, I don't know, uh, which is naughty, of course, I'm wrong. But, um, yeah, but, but anyway, we're playing these jazz tunes and I'm closing my eyes and I'm playing my ride. Like, and I could be at the Bell, I could be at the Farmhouse, I could be at uh, the Bebop Club in Bristol, I could be anywhere. Then all of a sudden, I can... Peter Gabriel's voice is singing this standard in my headphones. And I'm looking out and he's there singing into the microphone. And he's finishing a track and he's sort of going, right, guys, what do you think? This is, this is my usual thing. Uh, how, you know, how's it sounding? And I'm thinking, he goes, he said, Rob, what do you, <laughs> I don't know what to say. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's rubbish, Pete. Yeah, you're rubbish. I said, it's, it's, 
Oh, I said, it sounds great to me. And the band, you know, then one of the band members slightly over goes, yeah, I think maybe if you don't mind me saying you can put some inflections on some of these words. He's like, no, no, I'm, I'm up for that. Because as I say, it's not my thing. So I love Sinatra and stuff, but I, it's, I don't know right. this genre to sing. And he's willing to take, you know, and he's like, he said to me, so how am I on the beat? Is it good? And I'm like, it feels good to me. And I said, the way you're just gliding over anyway is just great. And of course, that's before all these stars started to do these jazz albums, you know. Was, right. And of course, he didn't want that. It was actually for an event. I think there was a reason he was doing it. Right. It might have been for his parents' anniversary or something. I can't remember. It was a lovely sentimental reason. It, and right. I think somebody said that one of them appeared on a B-side or something. Oh, I don't know. I don't right. know. But I've never seen it. But, but yeah, and it was wonderful. I remember, and my other memory is going into the control room and I can't remember the guy's name, who's his engineer. Why well, can't I remember his name? I've been a bit bad with names. You said I was good at recall. I am, but I can't remember some names sometimes. But I'm, I'm stood at the back. The band are around, and I'm stood next to him, or he's, he's actually on my right. And I'm also looking at some CDs, and he and uh, um, he had a few Prince ones as well. And I knew I knew he was a Prince fan, and I knew right. he'd been to see quite a few of the gigs and stuff. Um, and I'm sort of looking at that, thinking, right, I'm in this hut, you know, whatever they call it. You know, I'm in there. <laughs> I'm listening to myself at Real World. I'm listening to the band, all my mates, jazzers. And I'm still next to Peter Gabriel. And then we start doing this sort of, uh, sort of doo-bop dancing with, like this, both of us at the back, like this, you know, <laughs> to, the, to the tune <laughs> that we're listening back to. And it's just like, oh, my God, I'm doing this with Peter Gabriel. This is the maddest thing I've <laughs> You know, um, and we break for lunch. And he, he, come, he instead of going down to the the kitchen and like you normally do and say you know this is the choices what do you want you sit in the lovely you know breakfast room you know the dining room he brought it up he brought it up on trays you know what people wanted he himself he didn't sort of go oh minion go and get me you know their food he did it (laughs) and then at the end of the day he paid us cash in envelopes you know like it was just kind of really it was bizarre because most gigs are like you know give us your details and you've done that already it's all signed up you know that'll be forwarded in a couple of weeks Great, you know, that's kind of what happens. You disclaimers, you know, you won't come back for any more money. You know, that's business. Yeah. But, but, but you know, and I think we sign things. But there, it was just so such a different experience. Um, and people say, don't be your heroes and stuff. But he was, you know, clearly you can see I'm still elated now. And I got home and I, about nine o'clock at night, and I was ringing everybody and I got really drunk and I was ringing everybody, annoying them, <laughs> all my friends. Guess who I've worked with today? You know, like, oh, what? <laughs> and I was like Peter Gabriel you won't believe it um, and I still feel excited I just yeah. you know I just wish that Manny wasn't such a good drummer and Steve Gadd and all these other guys that play on his records because <laughs> give everyone else a chance I'd yeah. love to I'd love to to work with him again on something that gets officially released but I guess in a way the fact that my, that my story is so personal to me and yeah. that no one knows the material makes it even more special in a way because yeah. no one can go to a CD and go, oh, oh I know that track yeah it's like I did something that it's never been, well, may have been bootlegged, I don't know. But I certainly haven't never heard it. But it, it makes it even, maybe that's more special. I just thought that. Maybe that is. That it's something that only we shared at that time for that one day. It may have been two. I think it was one. One yeah. day. And it might be something that he actually remembers because it was so um, so unique for him. Uh, absolutely. And there's going to be sessions he isn't going to remember. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, I think he, he might remember that one. And I, I, I know did that blood choir thing or whatever it was called the blood orchestra or whatever which was which was amazing with the strings oh um, yeah i just got that new blood i think new it blood is with, that's it with the um the hypodermic needle on the on the front that's that it. thing there's some darkness in that lots of darkness and his production is always so sublime it's amazing yeah i mean 
Again, I, I think he is spoken about in, 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 in the ways that he should be, but I think on mass, people like Pearl Parade, people say Sledgehammer, you know, and there's so much more to the material than that, yeah. you know. Um, yeah, but that, that was an amazing experience. And of course, once you've done something like that, that leads you on to all the rest of the stuff that started to happen. So, yeah, it was kind of a thread from there to, you know, like that connection to Simple Minds. Uh, and then that connection went to Miles Kane, and they yep. were record. They were recordings that come out, thankfully. And then Miles Kane working which, with um, him was the same. Which Miles Kane were you on? Did you play on Inhaler? There was. Uh, it was two tracks. Uh, they were the ones he wrote with Andy Partridge, which is how I ended up working with Andy. Bizarrely enough, from uh, XTC. Yeah, I'm trying to think what those tracks were called. They were written by him and Andy. No, one was written by him and Paul Weller. Um, I can't remember. Uh, it's on one of his solo albums. That doesn't really help, does it? It's loads of them. <laughs> yeah. They're the on one of his Miles, records. The only Miles Kane song I know is Inhaler, which I thought was a great it, song. It's not that. Um, anyway, but it, it's two songs. I only did two with him. Right. Um, and then, yes, I was like, who are you writing with? He said Andy Partridge. And I know Andy had mentioned my playing, because Andy's a massive lover, because XDC, I mean, I love them too. I mean, yeah. If you like the Beatles and the Beach Boys and stuff, you're going to like XTC because that's where they're from. I only know the bloody <laughs> Nigel song. Oh, right. Man, which, I do, which I do love, but I'm sure... Uh, yeah, I, I know that there's a real, real cult following for that stuff. And, and that, that Nigel song was almost <laughs> like a tongue-in-cheek piss take. But it is a great song. It is. It is. a The drum groove in itself is an amazing little piece of drum pop, you know, like genius. Mm. And... You know, and there is a story on that as well. But and, and he'd heard of me and wanted to work with me, and I had no idea that he loved jazz as heavily as I did. You know, he's really into his favorite jazz fusion album is a really heavy one called um, "Emergency" by Tony Williams Lifetime, right? Which is I can't remember if it's Jack Bruce on bass, um, Tony Williams and Larry Goldings on. Oh no, it's John McLaughlin on guitar. That was later with Jack Bruce. But anyway, it's a really heavy album. That's well, Jack very, Bruce from Cream. Heavy listening, yeah. Right. He was in a back, uh, and he did a few albums with Tony Williams later. But no, I think it's John McLaughlin on guitar, Larry Goldings on Hammond, and Tony Williams. And it's from like 1969 or 70, and it's really heavy. I mean, it's heavy in volume, it's heavy in demanding your attention. Right. It's one of those albums that when you buy it, you go, oh, I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll leave that for a while. <laughs> right. Really yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> I've had a few albums in my life like that. One of them was Spectrum. Yeah. Billy Cobham. Yeah. One of them was Love Supreme. That is... By John Coltrane. I, I come back to that album periodically because... Um, and this is something that I actually take from you via Clive Stocker. Clive once said that he, when he was doing his book, he asked you, um, yeah. oh, how do you get into something? You know, how do you perform something and do a job for someone if you don't necessarily really love what they're doing yeah uh, and and he said that you said something that stuck with him is that you go you you listen and you listen and you listen and you listen and listen until you love it until yeah. you find redeeming features in it and Absolutely. i've remembered that for years via you via clive um wow, that's and, great. and i that that's what got me into jazz because i was like i need to just keep diving in here and just keep going and i don't get it and i don't get it and i don't get it and then one day i'm like Okay, I'm starting to get this, yeah. And so, so thank you very much for that. But yeah, but but Love Supreme is one that I'm is my ongoing. Um, keep with it, keep yeah. with it, because the 
you know, I'm a spiritual person. I'm not necessarily a religious person, but I'm a spiritual person, I like to think. And certain records have, and that's one of those records that has that. And then there was Emergency by Tony Williams that I was just like, no. And I was happy to read that Vinny Colliuta said the same thing. I was like, oh, right. no, he is a genius. So I'm really glad that he feels the same. But, <laughs> but he loved it. Andy loved it. So we met one time. And he's, he's quite, he's, he's quite a, not a recluse, but he's, he, like, he doesn't like to be out in the limelight, Andy. He likes to do his own thing. And, you know, right. and I totally respect that. And he likes his space and don't get into it. And I don't want to talk about XDC and all that. Um, but anyway, we did a session together um, and it was a, for, for an album that I can't remember. It was, it was him and, um, it, was, it was him and Spoken Word, basically. I can't think who the actor was, but um, it was a really cool kind of arty house album. And we, he, we always threatened to work with each other more. And we did a few sessions, but they never used anything. Um, then they put drum machine on it instead of a live drums and stuff because they wanted a different vibe and all that. And it was always like this, this isn't going to happen. It was almost like, oh no. And then Colin Moulding, the bass player, came into it through a, another Swindon connection. And of course, they're supposed to not get on because of various money tree things from the band and whatever. Um, so I start doing sessions with Colin, which he's paying me for and it's for an EP or whatever. And then I, it's almost like sleeping with somebody else's wife. Then at the same time, Andy said, right, we're going to do a session. I'm going to get you in. We're going to go to a practice room. We're going to do what I'm doing now with my audio, leave it up and running, record everything and make it into a conceptual record. Bill like Mars used to and splice it together. I was like, man, I love the shit out of that idea. That's brilliant. Yeah. And it happened to be his birthday. He turned up with a case of very fine red wine. Right. Um, about one o'clock in the afternoon, we've been playing for two hours, and just literally the tape would be running with, well, the computer would be running with no, just us talking. Yeah. And he would go, right, 5-8. Rob, give me a 5-8. And I'd go, okay, one, two, three. What tempo? So it doesn't matter. Okay, so one, two, three, four, five. One, two, three. And I'd make it pretty generic. And then he'd say, right, make it less generic. I don't want to hear the five. And I'd say, oh, oh, Christ, okay. Right, and then one time he came over, he grabbed some sticks out of my stick bag and started playing my cymbal stands. And he was like, are you rolling? And he's like, I'm recording everything. And he started playing my kit and the rims and stuff, <laughs> going around my kit. And then, you know, he was looking to people, because the idea was like, respond. It's like art house. I loved it. Right. So um, the keyboard player also had some sort of mo- Moogs or Moog, however you want to say it, Moogs, and started playing around. The guitarist had some effects. And, you know, then we had, we had loopers, so the guitarist would say something to the microphone and it would start swirling around. Uh, and, and it just became this thing. And I've got that somewhere, I think, or I, uh, at least I've heard it. Uh, I don't think I've got it anymore, but I'd heard it. Um, and if we could have made that into something, that would have been amazing. And just watching him act like an 18-year-old kid, so excited about making music with people on a wavelength that he didn't have to worry about Nigel or he didn't have to worry about, you know, uh, another nice melodic change that's McCartney-esque or whatever. He could just do what he wanted um, in this sort of vein and sphere of music. It was just so inspiring. And we drank those bottles of wine and I had to get my girlfriend at the time to drive up from Chippenham to where we were rehearsing outside of Swindon to pick us up and I had to go back the next day to pick my car up. Um, And it was just phenomenal. But of course, I had to break the news that I was working with Colin as well. <laughs> so it was kind of we were taking the gear out. We were all very, very drunk, uh, and um, bless him, he was help. He must have been drunk because he was helping us take gear out. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and he said something like, um, "I said so." I said something like, uh, uh, "Andy, I want to. I got something to say, man. Like, I really love today, you know, and I don't want to break the vibe. But and, I, and in a way, it's like, why are you saying this? But." I thought it's better me than him finding out and saying, why didn't you tell me? Anyway, so I said, um, I'm doing a session with Colin. 
And he went, what, moulding? And I went, yeah. And he went, oh, right. And I thought, oh, that's all right then. And then he started this tirade. He was like, Colin Moulding, man, don't mention that name to me. You know, I could tell you some stories about us and money. And oh, God, it's like, <laughs> And then I went back to Colin and on a session. I was like, Colin, I, I said that I was working with you. He said, oh, Andy, yeah, yeah. What did he have to say? I said, oh, nothing really. <laughs> Everything was fine. He said nothing. <laughs> it was fine. Uh, um, but then they started to talk to each other and there was some sort of talk of a reunion. Um, and then Terry Chambers, the original Is this where you say you brokered that and you're responsible for the XTC reunion? Oh, I wish I could say... No, actually, I don't wish I could say that because I'd love to have been there. But Terry Chambers came back, the original drummer from Australia, because he buggered off when they stopped touring back in the day. And they used... Um, uh, Dave Mattox and other great studio drummers for the rest of their time because like Talk Talk they didn't tour anymore because of various things and they just made great records instead um, and uh, they, Colin said look sorry you know I've paid you for the, the, the sessions but I'm going to put Terry on it because he's back and he's our original drummer do you mind I was like no you know it is what it is you can't yeah. argue with that you know because I've, <laughs> I've done albums where I've replaced Simon Phillips's drums not because he's not a good drummer just because they didn't suit the song Right. And, I, and I talked to someone the other day. I know, Simon Phillips, right? You know, it's like, what? Because yeah. <laughs> someone told me that. It was when I was working with Michel Ponareff. And he said, we've we've had to replace some of the tracks because they just didn't sit right. And, of course, that's not saying that he's he's ten times the drummer I am. Of course he is. Simon Phillips but, is a legend. Yeah. And, of course, when people say that, they're not saying he's rubbish. You know, they're saying his drums didn't suit this track, but yours will. So I can't go around going, oh, I'm better than... Because that's rubbish. <laughs> but, but it's what you do in the industry. You say, no, that's fine. And then somebody yeah. rang me the other day and said, Rob, we've replaced your, two of your drum tracks with... Um, oh, they're brothers. I can't think of his name. Uh, he's a producer as well. But um, I think of his name in a minute. With, with so-and-so. He was in the studio. And is that cool? Of course it's cool. You know, what, what can you say? Yeah. You know. Um, you, but, were you paid? Yeah, I was paid and it's all well, done. There you and go, then. and yeah. it's fine, you know, it's okay. It's what is musicians have respect for each other. And some people have got the name and you can't argue with that, you know, and they're bloody good players too. So <laughs> what are you going to do? Um, yeah. So, uh, yeah, and he was cool with it. And I said, no, I'm cool with it, you know, whatever. And then um, it didn't quite happen, but t- t- Terry Chambers and, and Colin went out on their own and got some stu- uh, some Swindon musicians friends of mine actually Gary Bamford a keyboard player and guitarist joined and they did a few gigs in Swindon that were sold out of course a few secret yeah. gigs and a few big gigs at the Wyvern or somewhere um, and then it all disbanded again which is a shame because it had been nice but Andy was never going to do it but uh, maybe he was but but I'd like to work with him again and he, he was um, being interviewed a little while ago maybe about two years ago uh, and, he, someone, and someone tweeted it to me and said that um the, the interviewer said, would you like to, you know, what was you, what musicians would you like to work with, you know? And, and and he mentioned my name. He said, Rob Bryan's a good drummer. And he said something like, and I don't do enough with him or something like that. And, I, that, and it was tweeted and I just thought, yes. <laughs> but that's as far as it went, you know. And right. the, last, the last concept was we were going to make a trio album of uh, that kind of performance with Charlie Jones on bass from Goldfrap and stuff, which is how I got the Goldfrap uh, album thing. Um and uh, him, uh, me on drums, obviously, doing, like, uh, nursery rhymes, but jazz fusion nursery rhymes, like spoken word with all this art house. I mean, I love it. i got a real soft spot for free jazz and free expression because we've all done so much in the box. you just got to look at the, st- the records I've made with people to see I could play in the box. But to be able to play out would be lovely on an official release would be so cool just to let show the other side of... 
you know, him as well, more importantly, that he's got this whole other thing going on. He can write the two-minute perfect melodic pop song. Yes, he can. But he can also do this weird jazz free-form stuff, which is, uh, which I think is amazing. You know, I think that's incredible. Incredible. Tell me about Susie Sue. Tell me about Jules Holland and okay. Jonathan Ross. <laughs> and tell me, tell me about that whole... Because that's when you arrived, isn't it? That's when I arrived. That's yeah, because all of that was kind of building up to something. Um, and uh, Charlie Jones, uh, the, the bass player I just mentioned in Golf Rap, he's a good, good friend of mine for, for years. Um, and he asked me up to his house one day, uh, and he sat me in. He's, I mean, he's got yeah, he's had a great career. So he's got a lovely house. He's got a lovely stereo system, and it's just a great place. And he's a great guy and a great vibe. So he sits me in this chair, a bit like the Maxell advert, you know, with the guys. Oh hair yeah, I love that. Picture. It was just like that, man. And he said, "I'm going to play something." And this sounds like a romantic. It's, it's true though, or pop romance. Um, I'm going to play something for you. I want you to listen to it. You tell me who it is, if you like it, and we should talk after that. So I'm sat there thinking, bloody hell, okay. So he presses play. And I hear this song, and I can hear elements of gold frap, synthy stuff. The voice I recognise, but I, I don't recognise her in this more modern darkness kind of vibe. Not darkness as the band, but the darkness of the music. Bit yeah. Massive Attack, bit gold frappy, but it's hard hitting and really cool analog sounds. And I'm thinking, bloody hell, but still rip roaring guitar in it. Anyway, it happened to be um, Into a Swan, which was Susie's first single off of the album Manta Ray, which is what they just recorded. Clive Dean were on drums, great band, you know, they're all, they're all kicking. So he comes back in and I, I didn't guess it. I said, I know the voice, Charlie, I just can't place it. And he said, well, you know, Susie in the band trees. And I'm like, oh, of course it is, you know. Yeah. And, and I had a feeling he was going to ask me something. But, of course, you don't want to presuppose. I've been in the business long enough to think, oh, yeah, I thought you were going to ask me. Oh, no, I just wanted you to wear it. Do you like it? Great, let's have a beer. Because <laughs> that's <laughs> happened before. And I've gone, oh, <laughs> I thought I was in, in then, you know. So, <laughs> yeah. so I didn't suppose anything, presuppose. And, and uh, he said, great, um, let's go outside and chat. So we went outside to his garden and he's like, you know, would you – what are you doing at the moment? I said, well, teaching mostly. Things are a bit quiet. It's a little bit of a lull for me at that point. So it's a bit bit quiet. I'm earning good money teaching at Millfield School and Sherbourne, two private schools, making a nice bit of Wonga, enjoying a nice flat in Camden Crescent in Bath. I'm enjoying life, you know. Yeah. Um, but I miss gigging. And he said, well, yeah, maybe you might not want to do this then, you know, because that's quite a lot to give up. And I said, well, what, what are you saying? He said, well... Basically, Clive, you know, has done the album and he's a great drummer, isn't he? He said, but he's with Robert Plant most of the time, you know, and he's right. touring, you know. And please don't think you're second best at all. He said, but he's busy and he's done the album, but he's already said, I can't give up the Robert gig. And he said, the only person we could think you could do the brushes, because there's a track with brushes on the album. He said, I need somebody who plays brushes. Somebody who can play to a click is a definite. He said, I know you can do that. Someone who can pr- uh, trigger while playing. He said, I know you can do that. Someone who's got chops, I know you've got that. You know, so I was like, yeah, okay, so what, what are you saying? He said, but do you want it? And he said, but if you, if you enrol in this, you need to know it's a two or three year thing. He said, I'm going to tell you now. He said, there's TV involved. And of course, we all watched it at that time, you know, <laughs> later and stuff. Yeah. I said, well, well, really? He said, yeah, yeah. He said, um, he said, but don't go sharing this. I said, no, no, I won't. He said, this is her first thing solo ever because she's been with Budgie. They've divorced. The band obviously was way gone anyway. Um, yeah. She's nervous about this, you know, coming out <laughs> on her own, presenting with a new band. Um, yeah. so, but she's going to do later. And I was just like, I want in. I want in. You yeah. know, I'm in. He said, what about yeah. the scores? I said, yeah, no, I'm going to be losing a fair bit a month. But Fuck I'm the in. kids. 
Get me on the road. Yeah, sold the phone. And of course, I didn't have one then, which is freedom. So, I mean, I had a girlfriend, but she was on board with it. She was cool. And um, so that was it. And then we started rehearsals at the huts out at Real World. Um, and yeah, that was just, then, then it was kind of, I've done stuff and I've never been bounded around. I know, as I say, but all of a sudden, and I've done a few clinics, but all of a sudden, this was something that was going to make, if I wanted to seize it, you know, carpe diem, whatever it is, you know, if I'm going to seize the day, it's going to be now. Yeah. So the minute I started rehearsing, I contacted Rhythm. Well, I'd done a few things before, but I was like, great, we'll have you as an interview. Great. And I was like, oh, yeah, no, no, we'll get you in. A proper interview, not just like a side thing. Proper interview, two-page interview. And I'm, all of a sudden, these things open up. And I started yeah. touring, did the TV, did the Jonathan Ross, did all the, the, the gigs, went to America, you know, all around Europe, all the stuff we did. Uh, TV there as well. And it's just, it's just like, oh, my God. Yeah, and I'm going to go with this. And my business head came on and the clinic started to roll in. Um, Sonal started to put me up a bit higher. I was in all the catalogues. All of a sudden, things started. all the things you want as a kid started yeah. to happen. And mm-hmm. I, I was only in my early 30s and it was a, or mid-30s. So it was a good time for because I'd learned enough uh, from eight, I started at nine, but I'd learned all the stuff we've talked about all the way up, you know, the, the, the pros, the cons, the defeats, the wins, all the way up, yeah. good gigs, bad gigs, all the way up to this. And, it, and I thought, right, I'm going to, gonna take you're wise enough to know what was good for you what was what was a trap what was maybe a trapping of uh success or the wrong decision for you yeah and i just thought i'm gonna gonna sail on it and i'm gonna do my do everything i can do here and i contacted modern drummer they were suddenly interested and i started writing lessons for them which was like it's modern drummer. This is the one everybody in any airport around the world reads. I mean, rhythm is a good one, but modern drummer is everywhere. There could yeah. be a guy in Hong Kong sat there waiting for a plane, you know, looking at my magaz- my lessons, you know. Um, and, you know, was, I did like probably three or four editions of it, but that that's still something I'm really proud of because that's quite an achievement for me, you know, and it's I don't massive. care if people did more. But for me, it means a lot because that, yeah. mag- that was the magazine. Yeah. Um, and then well, it back just, to, it's validating isn't it absolutely you say you've been published in those magazines and and rhythm's good and drummer at the time which was still around then um but modern drummer was kind of like and even rhythm were like no no we've got to say that's like the that's what we're basing ourselves on is that one yeah um and then rhythm got more involved drummer got me more involved and yeah all the clinics the rhythm tech course started to come in all these things started to happen um and more lecturing came in uh, more clinics and i just went with it you know i think you have that time where you just have a good time get pissed do what you're gonna do um not sure if i should say that or get drunk uh and you, you enjoy it, you play the lifestyle, you come home, you spend all your money, and you don't you have stories. Yeah. Or you build on that. You still have your stories, you still have your fun, you still spend a bit of money, but you, you, you build on that. And I came home and I remember saying to my girlfriend at the time, This is my time. This is my time now. You know, yeah. throughout the Goonies, this is our time. <laughs> when they're down there, they're like, This is our time, we have to do it, you know. <laughs> It's true, and I relate a lot of things to movies like that. I can't help it. But it's our time, and it was my time. So, yeah, I seized the day, uh, and I made sure that I did everything that I could within reason, you know, not trying to put yourself everywhere, but Mr. Johnny, you know, I'm here. Um, It was more kind of like, 
right, I'm here, I've got this now, people are seeing me differently, and I'm just going to use that, because people do start seeing you differently. You're no different than the, the day before I went up to see Charlie to listen to the, the single. I was no yeah. different, but, um, and I wasn't going to change, so I just kept that going, and, and it, just, it just worked. And I got on well with Susie, made some great contacts there, and that shared, you know, some... Actually, that was before Simple Minds, so, um, so Simple Minds thing come after that, and, and obviously the golf rap and all the later things you mentioned were after that, but it was all kind of that was my moment and, and I could easily have gone back to teaching after three years and let it go and had the stories and been oh I did that once but I wanted to keep it going I didn't want it to be just once yeah. uh, and I wanted to build on my teaching and my clinician side of my uh, writing uh, uh, you know lesson side of that for magazines I wanted to take all that further yeah. um, and I ended up going to Drum Channel in America with Don Lombardi hence why I did my show there and they interviewed me for an hour I had my own show you know, like someone at Kerper Square is a great drummer interviewing me, you know, about my career up to that point. It's like insane. You know, <laughs> I mean, I'm not. I mean, I, in a way, I, I work to be there, but it's like Thomas yeah. Lang's on next week. Steve Smith was on last week. And I'm sat in the middle of this from Corsham. Yes, a little Corsham boy, you know, like <laughs> he's worked bloody hard and keep working. But, you know, yeah. um, and Don was so lovely and he was so into my playing with traditional grip and he, he was like, you know, you British drummers have got a lovely style and the way you play your left hand and all this. And we still talk about it. We did like a a podcast, um, a, a kind of Zoom chat thing every Saturday through lockdown. And he was one of the guests. And of course, I'm a DW guy now anyway. And he, he still talks about my left hand. So he's got a really nice left hand. It's very American, unlike the European way of playing. And we just bonded. Uh, and that's how I got the DW thing because literally Drum Channel is next door to DW. They're over the road from each other. Right. <laughs> and um, he said, I know you're a Sonal guy, but come and have a look at the factory. And Sonal were great. And they're still amazing drummers, but... Uh, a few things had happened that I wasn't very happy with on various tours. Like things, you know, I mean, I love it. I don't want to, I'm not going to say any bad things, but things just didn't go quite as well as I hoped. Um, it, some important times in my career. So, um, right. DW, okay. uh, I Do saw the they sort of like, they sort of dropped the ball a couple of times or maybe one too many when, when it really counted. Yeah. And as you can, uh, hopefully you can tell, I, I know I'm not Jack Dijonet. I know I'm not Steve Smith. I know I'm not Jojo May. I'm not one of the front, big guys i know that but i'm a steady worker and i'm yeah. always working with their product and i was always doing adverts and taking pictures of it and i was doing my thing you know and um anyway a few times it didn't quite work out so um which can be embarrassing when you're playing you know in a club of five thousand people and you've got gear that isn't quite what it should be you know and right you were promised anyway, so um so I went D- on dw D- are a step up though aren't they well they on were the global, went- on the global scale Man, that they, they they Pearl did it, and then DW topped them. You know, they managed to just get it right, um, and they left me in Candyland. If you've seen those clips of Thomas Lang in Candyland in DW, when it's all the kits set up, I got left in there. Terry Bozio's son, I can't think of his name now, was my guide, and he le- <laughs> he left me in there. My girlfriend right. at the time. We in a hire car. She went off to a shopping mall, which was just down the road. So I was left in there for like two hours playing in all these kits. Amazing. Like literally is Candyland. It's like Willy Wonka yeah. time, you know. Um and um <laughs> matron. Um and I found the kit that I really liked the most was the collectors. And it was really close to the SQ2, um sound wise, and I tuned and I anyway. We did four days there and he took us out uh, with his wife. Dom was a, a gent. He's such a sweet, he's such a lovely, he's so old school. It reminded me of Steve Gardner and my days at Assembly Music. Old school, kind of, I'm Bob Zildjian, you know, uh, you know, a shovel's a shovel and that's it, you know, and it, it just straight down the line, but very fair people. Yeah. Um, 
And we, we spent two days not being with him as well. Um, we went touring around LA and bits and bobs. And we, the last day we came back and we were going to go up to Big Sur, you know, up in California in the mountains and everything, right. you know. We had a cabin up there, which is amazing. Um, but I, on the last day, I wanted to see him to say our goodbyes to everybody. And I said, Don, I've thought about this for two days. And he said, I think I know what you're going to say. <laughs> and I said, well, could we go into your, your office? And in this office, he's got this big table. And, um, and he had pictures of like Buddy Rich at the time on a DW kit, which not many people knew he played for a little while, but he didn't get right. on with it. But, but So I'm sat in this like, it's like seeing an old Beatles record or something that nobody knows about or something. It's like, whoa, no one knows about this shit. Yeah. And um, <laughs> he said, come and sit down because we'd have lunch and we'd sit together on the end of the table, me and my girlfriend. And, and I said, I'm going to sit at the end. Because I want to feel like we're in a business meeting. And he was like, you Brits are crazy, man. So I sat at the end, like you do seeing films. And uh, I was like, yeah, it's not all right. It's not a huge table, but it was reasonably big. And yeah. um, I said, Don, I, I think you know what I'm going to ask you. And uh, I feel awkward doing this because I've been with a certain company. Well, I've said it already, but so, for so many years. <laughs> yeah, Son, I guess so, 15 years. And, but I, you know, uh, and you've heard me say some things and I'm, and I've heard that you've got enough kits in all these locations around the world. And uh, anyway, and he said, look, I, I know what you're going to say. And the answer is yes. But the answer is you're going to have to, that was October or September. He said, you're going to have to wait till next May to get whatever kit that you order from us. Um, and if you're happy with that wait, then we're happy to have you on board. Right. And I was like, oh my God. I said, I feel so guilty in one way, but in another way, I feel so happy because if you can really, you know, I love the drums. I love that collector series. And if you can promise me that I can turn up the Fillmore clubs in America and have a collector's or jazz series or one of the top lines and not one of your, nothing wrong with the Pacific kits. I know they're good, but having a Pacific kit on stage, I'm a DW player. Like he said, that would never happen. He said, we've got right. enough higher kits and loner kits all around the world. He said that if you had a festival, if you had, um, no, Dave Phillips, actually, the rep told me this. If we had, he said, if you have the festival, Reading, uh, uh, Nebworth, all these other festivals on, and most of them are American or European drummers that play DW, which is true, he said, we still have more kits to go around. And I'm like, yeah. I'm in. You got I'm me. In. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but the thing is, people say, oh, not the product then. It's like, no, the product was amazing. If I didn't like it, I wouldn't have done it. You know, these yeah. people that do that, you see people jumping ship all the time for the money or for the deal. They get sussed out pretty quickly. And they're, you know, I'm certainly not going to mention names, but we all know drummers who do that and guitarists and whatever. And that's a very short lived thing because Dave at Hardcase told me a thing. And again, Steve um, Gardner at Assembly Music was like this. It's that old school thing. Is that thing is, it's like when you, it's the classic thing, when you're on your way up, be nice to all the people on the way up. Because yeah. on the way down, you're going to meet them all again and they're yeah. going to go, all right, mate. Yeah, yeah. you're right. You're coming back down again. <laughs> um, and it was that thing of like, drum companies aren't stupid. They're going to see you rhythm Ludwig one month. Six months later, you're on Gretsch. Then you're on Yamaha. Then, and then eventually companies go, nah, you're not, you're not coming here, actually, yeah. because we don't need that because you're going to get the kit. You're going to get all the adverts. We're going to pay you. And then you're going to bugger off to another one in six months' time, like and, pork and, pie or whatever. Yeah, you know? and you damaged that brand because people go oh well what was wrong with dw then and <laughs> exactly. there's nothing wrong with dw it's just they're they're being a bit of a whore that's that's the thing that's the thing and you know and i thought i'm not getting into that game and I, i'm gonna go with this company because one i like don two i love the drums and then two 
I love the drums when I like Don and vice versa. You know, it's like, I love the way this, and it's such a small company considering how they've dominated the drum world. Believe you me that it's quite, it's a big factory, but it's not ridiculous. It's not like the Zildjian factory or something. It's, it's quite a small little affair really in a way. And of course they know everyone's names and that, that could be a bit of PR there, but I love that. And it was a really nice sort of atmosphere and to get to Candyland and play the drums and actually like them. Cause I wasn't uh-huh. sure if, I, if they were just going to be faceless drums that, you know, because certain companies I love, they're all they're all brilliant, but I just don't feel right behind them. You just don't get a vibe. Um, as I said, I'm not going to say any names, but there are some that, you know, off camera or podcast I could talk about. Uh, but with DW, it just felt right. And they felt like, because they are like the old Ludwigs, but more modern. Same mm. kind of shell designs, but bringing it up to date, you know, without all the vintage stuff that goes with it. And so they sound good and they feel good and uh, the hardware's good. So anyway, so that's what happened. And so that's how that picked up. And then they took me under their wing and I do clinics for them. And I do this podcast, uh, playlist parties. I did one again last week. I so, yeah, tell me about this DW playlist party. And um, was, uh, yeah, tell me about that. It, it was such a great idea. Uh, Jules came up with the idea, Jules Thomas, um, over in LA, um, who does a lot of uh, of the press stuff and artist relations and stuff like that. She's a sweetheart. She's amazing at her job. Um, she contacted me. I've seen a few of them on YouTube. I just stumbled across it. Maybe they sent an email out through lockdown, the hard lockdown, and I just didn't see it because we all had emails aplenty. And so I missed it anyway, um, the adverts. And I saw um, Mike Clark, who's on um, the second Headhunters album, uh, Thrust. He's a great drummer. He did all that live stuff. Um he was on it and he's also a great jazz drummer and I, and I remember getting involved and he answered one of my questions or joined in on something I said about Love Supreme and he was and Tony Williams or so anyway and I wrote to her the next day and I said Jules this thing you're doing I didn't know it was this is great you're picking drummers to talk about for an hour or half hour or 20 minutes whatever they want about five of their favourite songs or drummers or what and she said yeah do you want to do it and I was like yeah what a great idea and I just thought it was a really positive thing for them to do in lockdown then of course Mike Dolbear started interviewing we did one as the Palace drummer clinic we started doing one every saturday which is what i mentioned earlier we had some great drummers on like carl palmer and all sorts of people um so yeah then she asked me to do it and i really loved it and i really enjoyed it and then she said look you're really good you want to do another one and i said yeah i'll do 20 more of them and that and actually since the last one some people have said to me are you doing podcasts um would you be interested in doing this so a few other avenues have opened for me through that which again i either sit on or i do them i don't know yet um because as you know doing this sort of thing takes time and a lot of it your does. time and an effort and it's difficult but, but they stay they stay forever and it's another it's an it's an it's not it may not be enough i don't know if they're paying you it may not be another revenue stream but it's it's another way of people it's another audience it, that's know? what she said and yeah. and some of them are really short some are like 15 20 minutes and that's cool but I, as you can tell, I like to go on a bit and I get really into it. And that's when people have said to me, I love your passion. I love you. So who knows? But that's how that started. And and as I say, I've just got a... Dave Phillips is... I keep going on about these lovely people, but, you know, he, he they're also dealing with Gretsch, remember, and LP, uh, DW, of course. Uh, and they've got other things as well. I'm trying to think what... Uh, Pacific. They've got a few things now under the umbrella of yeah. DW because um, they saved Gretsch, basically, when they were going down. But what's nice about it, they saved Gretsch, but didn't say Gretsch by DW. It's just Gretsch. They said, look, here's some revenue. You're, you're back up and running. We want nothing yeah. else to do with it, yeah. which is great, because most companies would go, right, you're Gretsch by DW. 
But they've mm. totally respected it. Don is that sort of old school. Um, but Dave, I could contact, and he's got all these uh, all these artists to deal with, much bigger than me as well, to deal with. And I can send him an email within an hour, two hours max. I'll get an email back with an answer, or I can't get to you right now, Rob. But leave that with me. I'll get on it. And whatever I need doing, he will resolve that day or the next day. It's unbelievable. And he was on one of our PDC drum chats, uh, which are all on YouTube if people want to see him, and the Palace Drum Clinic. Um, but he he just said, you know, it's what I do. But I'm like, I was like, Dave, how do you do it? Like, how do you have the headspace? You must be writing everything down. He said, well, it's my job and I'm, I'm just good at it. And it's like, you are. Without you, for instance, I was rehearsing at Nick Allen's place with Susie. Um, I didn't have my kit because he was right, May. It didn't come in time. We were doing two gigs at the Royal Festival Hall for Yoko Ono. That's how I met Yoko. Um, doing um, her... As you do. Uh, you just do as you for do, Yoko Ono. As that, that was a, that, I, I couldn't say anything that day. I was just like... I mean, that's the closest I'm going to get to John Lennon. I mean, my God. Yeah. Um, so we were doing uh, the Meltdown Festival, which goes on every year, but she was the creator that year. So, of course, as the creator, so, as a, a very strong woman, she got very strong women performers mm. and uh, she got uh, uh what's her name from the slits and she also got Susie mm. and Susie sold out the first gig sold out within minutes really and then the, and then the next minute I'm getting an email saying can we do the next night or the Monday so we did the Friday and the Monday I think or Saturday and the Monday something like that uh, and we were the only people doing two gigs that sold out but there's loads of artists on I mean some couldn't but we could mm. um uh, and that that was just incredible. And I said, Dave, right, I've got... He said, I've got a hire kit for you. We can get you a DW kit. I thought, I'm not doing it on another kit. I want to go straight in. It's yeah. a great London drum company. I've got oodles of them, you know. What do you want? I said, well, what have they got? It's got a nice black diamond one and with black hardware. I said, that's the one <laughs> for Susie. <laughs> that's, that's the one, you know, like, I love it. Black hardware and everything sounds wicked. So it, it came and we're... And she's rehearsing at a halt with us, you know, at Nick Allen's place, Narm Studios, which is a great place, but, you know, there's Van Morrison, they've all been there. But anyway, it's yeah. just weird to think that Susie was there for some reason, I don't know why. Um, and um, the, uh, my drum tech comes in and he goes, um, oh, that's the kit. I said, yeah. He said, um, it's not ported. I said, no, I know. I said, that's a bit of a problem, isn't it? He said, well, we can attack it with the scissors and a knife and all that. I said, well, I'll tell you what. I said, look, it, it's a London Drug Company's kit. I said, they've given us a white one, but none of them are ported. But I said, don't worry about it. And he said, well, that's okay. I said, look, before you do anything, let's just rehearse like that today. I'll get on with Dave. And this was the first thing I have dealing with him. And I rang him up. I said, Dave, it's Rob Bryan. Um, I've just got on board. He said, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I got an email about a new indoor. So he said, nice to meet you. I said, yeah, nice to meet you. Um, I said, I'm rehearsing. I've got the, the, the London Drum Company kit. Thanks for the number. I've sorted it out. You know, he said, oh, that's fine. You know, no worries. He said, I could have done it. I said, no, I'll do it. And I did it. I said, but look, can you, I need a drum head. And he said, what do you mean? I said, I need the, I said, sorry, what I mean is the front head. I need, uh, not just a random drum head. I need my bass drum head um, ported. And I don't want to start attacking it. He said, well, you could, you know. I said, have you got one that you could send also a white one and a black one so the the lighting guy can see which one he wants or a clear one and he said yeah that's no problem he said whereabouts in london i said ah <laughs> that's the thing <laughs> we're not i said we're in deepest darkest wiltshire he was like what i said yeah, yeah i know we're like he said we're a world and i said no 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 we're away <laughs> about 10 minutes from there he said bloody yeah. hell i said i know i said usually we do but it's booked so we're at this lovely studio called Nam studios so it's really character it's a lovely place and he said oh, oh right okay he said um all right well uh, leave it with me and i said okay i said what do you want me to do he said nothing 
I said, just give me the address or email, text me the address in a minute or email it to me. Don't do it on the phone because there could be problems with like mishearing things. Send it to me and I'll get it to you. Sure enough, I turned up at 12 o'clock the next day. That must have been lunchtime or something. I turned up at 12 o'clock the next day or one o'clock uh, to start just the uh, rehearsals and stuff and just sound checking. Um, she wasn't going to come in until like three or four. And I go in and uh, drum, drum roadies are like, yeah, sorted. I said, what do you mean? He said, the head. He said, look, I'll put the white one on. And I was like, what have you got? He said, we've got a clear one, we've got a black one, and we've got a white one. All ported. <laughs> and I was like, but it's, you know, like back in the day, if it had been another company, I'd have to wait a week for it to come, you know, and then it was the next day. I mean, that, yeah. was, the, that was the start of it going on. Yeah. And it's it's just been golden since then, you know. Yeah. Anything I've wanted or asked for, you know, Dave is on it. And if you can't help me, you'll let me know straight away or point me into the direction of someone who can. Um, and when I'm at a trade show, he'll he'll message me and say, "Look, Rob, I've got two minutes. I could come and meet you for a coffee." And we do. We meet up. You know, it's it's just it just makes you feel the, the family thing, which I remember being with Sonal back in the day in Assembly Music. That thing I get from um, DW that. But it, it's longer lasting than, than that one, unfortunately, you know, with how that ended with the company. But, yeah. of course, they still make brilliant drums. Of course they do. I mean, I've never said anything else. But um, And they always said they'd have me back. But the thing is, the D, I don't need to because I've had some great times and some great stuff and some great records made on it and it's out there and YouTube clips of me with Susie and all that. It's all out there. But this is a new thing. And uh, I say new, it's 10 years or so now, but... But yeah, it's just been amazing. And the drums perform every time. And some people say, they're a bit faceless. And I go, no, I get it. I get it. You want to play something more quirky. And I, I get that. But the thing is, when you're turning up at Real World or wherever I'm going to turn up, I want my drums to perform. And they do. Yeah. With a bit of tweaking. Sometimes if I've got a tune in, that's fine. But I'm not worried about my performance, plus the kit sounding crap or it moving or it does yeah. its job. And it's got character, and everyone's happy. I mean, I'm I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, a workman. You know, I need my drum, my equipment to to do what I need it to do. Yeah. I don't need it to be quirky and detune when I'm playing a take. You know, I mean, I get all that sort of um, custom drum stuff, and it's brilliant. It is, but I want something that's going to last on the road. I want something that's yeah. going to be there every time I hit it. You know, yeah. um, every time I play it. Uh, and DW are more than delivering on every every scale. And tell me about the symbols. You, you've got your own range of symbols. Well, I did. Yeah, I did. That's so another. You did, uh, you did or you do? I did. They're still uh, out there, I guess, or maybe they're not. But yeah, Bosphorus was a, another great relationship which I had for ten years. Um, eventually, you know, culminating in my own range called the XT editions, which was which was brilliant. But. Um, Again, when things got a bit taxing, uh, and it wasn't money I was asking for, because I, you know, I can't ask for that, but I just needed backup. Um, but again, I don't want to say any bad things. They're lovely symbols and they're lovely people, but we just had a, a disagreement. So it was it how things in life work is wonderful. But um, a guy that used to work distribute some stuff in Italy kind of parted company with them as well, and he always said to me, "If you need another company." keep me in mind because I'm going to get another symbol company. You know, I can't quite work with this. I'm going to go elsewhere. And I was like, I'm not going to leave Bosphorus, but yeah, nice one, you know. Um, but then this thing happened and I was like, oh. and then bugger me if he didn't message me a little while afterwards saying, I've got a new range of symbols. Would you be interested? Designed in Italy, but made and forged in Turkey, which of course is the place where everyone wants their symbols made. 
And yeah. I was like, oh, this is interesting. He said, it's called Vulcan. And I was a bit like, oh, you know, live long and prosper, you know, <laughs> and uh, which I love Star Trek, that, that generation of Star Trek I love. Um, and I was a bit like, oh, okay. But I'm just about to go on tour with Lorena McKinney. I was about to go to South America. And I said, when are the symbols going to get here? And he said, I said, I'm going next week. He said, they might get there beforehand. They got there the day before I left. And yeah. I had this sort of like, I haven't told the band I'm going to take them. Uh, can I take them on as hand luggage? Yes, I could, but that's my case. I'm going to South America for three or four weeks. I've already got a... Ke- so I thought, I'm going to leave them here. I don't know if thought they're going to sound like even. So yeah. I left them. Went over there, played DW, of course, but I had a load of, you know, higher symbols or loan symbols, which were Sabians or Zildjians. Some were great. Some were not so great. Um, you know, my drum tech, Johnny, would message me and say, ah, they're dogs tonight. And you're like, oh, God. And I'm playing with Lorena McKinnett, which is very ethereal, very in your face with strings and everything music. And I'm playing these cymbals that some nights were like, oh my God, what am I doing? I'm playing in these like 5,000 sort of seater places and some are bigger, you know, some are big arenas. I'm thinking, what am I doing? You know, like yeah. I felt I felt really let down that something had happened just before that with the company. And and I went home and of course they, I, make, we made it sound good. Nothing was really that bad. But I went back and I was like, I can't do this. I'm not doing that again. Like how did I end up in this situation, you know? Yeah. Um, and after a few days of coming back, round you know from jet lag and stuff i went back out to nick allen's studio with his box of symbols like put them in the car and you know what it's like sometimes when you get something new you're like you're a bit like oh i don't want to hit it because it's going to be shite you know like, oh. <laughs> and i said i didn't even set the kit up and i went and said hello to nick and told the stories of being in chile and brazil you know all this stuff and it was an amazing tour and it was the start of this world tour which was still on before covid um and i put these stands up and i thought i'm not even going to set the kit up and i had this sort of like attitude of oh let's just try them and i got them out and i thought oh they look nice put them on stands and he's like okay well there's a stick and it really was kind of like i've been touring for a month i uh let's see what happens <laughs> it's just and i'm starting <laughs> hitting, hitting these crashes and i'm like four of them and i've got four rides in there and four pairs of, and i'm just playing these cymbals and i'm going ah oh. and it's like hang on a minute uh <laughs> i quite like that um let's leave those two on let's take these two what about the rides and it and yeah. it's, again, it sounds like it's a story that like, oh, wasn't true. But there, there wasn't a dog in there, to my ear. I mean, it's, yeah. it's subjective, I know. But to my ear, it's like, oh, that's a jazz symbol. That's a rock symbol. That's like a Ringo lay into it, sort of like feedback symbol, like Shh, tomorrow never knows ride symbol. I can lay into that. What yeah. about this one? Oh, that's quite dry. Mm, interesting. Get the hi-hats out. Oh, that's quite wet. That's good for that. Oh, that's quite dry. Oh, my God, that's quite splashy. All of a sudden, I was looking at these symbols going, I'm going to set the kit up. And I set the kit up. And I, <laughs> I didn't think I was going to. And yeah. I ended up staying there all afternoon. And wife's going, are you coming back any time today? You know, and I'm like, not yet. You know, <laughs> I'll get in trouble. I don't care. I'm playing these symbols. Um, and then Nick came in, bless him. And he said, you know, what do you think? And I said, they're amazing, Nick. I'm not taken by the name, though I love the Vulcan thing, but people will take the piss, but they're amazing symbols. So I contacted mm. him. He said, look, have them. That's on us. Have them. Get started. See how you feel. And I said, that's fine. You know? And of course, it was at that juncture, the other people around me, that point, people were saying, hang on, you're Carpe Diem. This is your point to go, excuse me, to go to Zildjian or Sabian again and try and get back on there, that ladder. And I said, yeah, I suppose. I said, but the thing is, 
my ear is telling me I like these symbols, right? And I'm going to like the Zildjians, I'm going to like the Sabians, of course. I find something. You always find something you like, like we said about the music. You find something. You try enough mm. of them. These are straight off the bat. I, I mean, I, I can't remember. Remember, I'd been through all this stuff with Bob Zildjian, this yeah. symbol training. So, of course, my ear, right. that's why I can't believe it. I'm like going... How can there not be one dud in here? It doesn't stand that. That's the law of averages says there's got to be one dog that even <laughs> I don't like, you know? Yeah. And there wasn't. And I was like, oh. And he's got faith. He's given me this, like, a lot of symbols, like, you know, and they're not rubbish. If they're rubbish, again, I can't afford to play rubbish because people are going to say, Rob, why have you got those? Go and get your Bosphoruses or your old Silgians. Get What are you doing with this crap? And you can't yeah. have that when you're performing. You just can't have it, you know? Um, you got pr- I got pride in what I do. So. And I started to take them to sessions and sheepishly put them on stands, you know, and say, you're going to like these. And they're like, oh, okay. And I'd be doing the session and thankfully, like, you don't think about it, but no one's saying anything. And it's great. So I am go back into the, you know, we've been tracking, let's have a listen. And I'm like, what do you think of the symbols, you know? And all the sound engineers were like, great. I've got, I've, don't really have to roll much off the top at all. They're actually just sitting in the mix. Great. And of course, as we all know, that's a good good symbol if you don't have to do anything to it or it's a bit or it's a bit uh, um and it was happening at real world it was happening uh at nam studios it was happening at riverside studios uh which is out at um bath eastern you know and they're all studios that i respect and i'm working with big names at all these places as well it's not like it's just little there's little stuff as well of course but but i'm I'm expected to be shot down at any minute someone say get your bosphoruses back out the case i know they're in the car go and get those these are shite you know it's like that um david brent thing you know go get the guitar get the guitar (laughs) it's it's sort of like that you know and it didn't happen and I, i ended up taking them on the next leg um of we went, rehearsed at Millennium Studios, which is like a big aircraft hangar just uh, in Milton Keynes, where right. Phil Collins, all these people go to. And I was there with Lorena, and um, the sound guy comes up. Well, actually, our sound guy is the guy who does Phil Collins' sound front of house, Rob Waite, and he's going to be doing the Genesis thing when it happens. Um, ah, maybe I shouldn't have said. That. I think I've seen him on a bunch of documentaries I've been watching recently about Phil Collins. He's a biggish <laughs> chap. Uh, I, I, I don't know. Well, he was in the nineties, maybe. Uh, I don't know if that was him then. Uh, uh, he's doing. He's been doing the sound uh, on the last Phil Collins World Tour, which was the. What, I don't know. Was he called? Was it not, not Dead Yet tour? It might have been. Or there something. was. There was a Not Dead Yet, and then there was a final tour. Ah, he's done both um, of those. Um, have you seen the slight tangent? Have you seen That's the right. um, the the documentary of that World Tour, that yeah. final one? Yeah. Um, you see it where the uh, they do the big two million pound check and then they get locked in the yes yeah. it's, it's, so, <laughs> it's so spinal tap isn't it oh it's really yeah hello Cleveland it really is it's, yeah yeah she's like they've locked us in. I can't believe they've locked us in <laughs> <laughs> it just shows you what life on the road is like though these sort of random crazy things happen all the time that people wouldn't believe it, yeah. when you tell them these stories they're like that doesn't happen it's like yes it does things happen all the time you know people get left behind these weird things happen you know i, I got left behind once you know it, it, we we played we, we played london um oh god uh not hammersmith odeon um oh it was with susie it was, it was uh, one of the big london gigs uh, oh. anyway one of the big theater gigs it wasn't coco it was another one anyway and i got not very, very drunk. No, I did that with Lorena last year. Not oh, the year before. No, not that one. I'd remember that. Not the festival hall. There was another one. Anyway, um, not town and country. That's no, no, not, definitely not that. Oh, anyway, not the forum. Oh, it will come to me. Anyway, right. but I got very, very drunk that night, um, and um, 
and we were staying around uh, at Key West, which is where a lot of the BBC people stay, and anyone who's doing anything in London on TV and stuff stay, stays at Key West. So when you go there, it's one of those places you see people at the bar, but you don't want to appear that you really care, you know. You say, mm. well, yeah, that could be so-and-so over there, and you know, Damon Albarn's over there, oh, who cares, you know. Wow, that's <laughs> Damon Albarn, brilliant, you know. Um, and uh, what's her name was riding high at the time? Oh, God, she had a Cockney accent. Uh, young singer. What, Adele? No, no, before her, it was... Kate, Kate Nash, is it? Oh, yeah, Kate Nash, yeah. It was Kate Nash. And we'd done a few TV shows with her, and her entourage... Had, I mean, Susie, of course, is the eternal punk queen, right? But, of course, she's, even back in the day, she wasn't really into the spitting, she wasn't really into the violence. She was into the art of punk. You know, that's what yeah. she was into, the clothes, the lifestyle, the poetry, the look. You know, and I didn't realise all that was going on until I worked with her, really. I thought yeah. it was a bunch of idiots sometimes, you know, because that's what BBC told you they were. They're all troublemakers. And it's not true, you know. Anyway, yeah. that's, not, that's political again. Let's not get into that. Um, and uh, she played on a few shows with us, but she trashed dressing rooms, this Kate Nash. She was a bit of a, you know, and Susie didn't like it. She was a bit like, well, that's sort of a bit uncool, you know, yeah. actually, you know, because we didn't do that particularly. Uh, anyway, so... And her drummer was lovely, though. He was a really nice guy, very quiet. So I'm talking to him at the bar. <laughs> and Ted's with me. He's the percussionist in the band, playing mallet cat and hand percussion and congas and that. And he stood with me, and um, I'm a bit drunk, and I'm going, yeah, you'll sing a Kate Nash. She's really up herself and all this. She's a bit of a, you know, and all this stuff. And he's going, oh, yeah, there's glass. And all the time, it's a bit like a comedy show, like Ted's going... Rob, Rob, Rob. Yeah, Ted. And where does she think she is? And then I turn around and she's behind me. But she's dressed as a carrot. This is true. This this is a great story. She's dressed as a carrot because she's just been doing some fundraising thing on BBC. Jesus Christ. And I turn around and she's dressed in this carrot. She sort of goes, walks away and I'm like, you're the one dressed as a a carrot, you idiot. (laughs) Or something stupid. Like Anyway, but I got so drunk that I went back up to my hotel room, you know, feeling like a rock star. Yeah. Uh, Missed all my alarms. Yeah. Usually I'm Mr. Keen. I pack up the night before. Yeah. Go to get showered, ready to go. Everything's ready to go. So if I get up late, case is packed. Not this time. Yeah. Stuff everywhere. Get the phone call. 20 minutes, we're out of here. Tour manager. Yeah. 15 minutes later, I'm still in the bath. <laughs> Why I'm in the bath? I don't know. I couldn't tell you. Right. So Ted rings me and says, right, Rob, we're in the we're in the bus. You hear that sound? That's the engine going. We're in the tour bus. Like, we're going to leave. So I finally get my stuff together, go downstairs, da 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 get in the bus. They're like, hey, he's here. Like, oh, don't. I feel a bit rough. Uh, go straight up to my bunk. Get in the bunk. Feel it, eventually stop moving. I'm feeling a bit Tom and Dick by this time. I'm feeling yeah. like both top and bottom is about to let loose. So I think it, I, I, you probably shouldn't be putting this on the podcast, but I think, oh my God. So I, we get to Heston Services, which is the first one out of London and obviously into the last one into London. Yeah. We stop there. I get out. I pass the keyboard player, Amanda. So Amanda, she sees me leave, to be fair, which always annoyed me a bit. Anyway, so I go into Heston <laughs> Services and it's, yeah, it's trouble, you know. So yeah. I'm in Heston. I'm doing what I need to do. Yeah. And I'm thinking, oh, God, you know, like, oh, I think I'm just about alive now. Wash my hands, go outside. It's the daylight. It's like, oh, God. What was the big shadow of a big bus? is now an empty space. <laughs> <laughs> and I go out the other side and think, hang on a minute, no, 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 this is 
eh? So I go out the other side of the services and I'm thinking, no, 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 we definitely came in this way. And I'm stood there. And I, thankfully I didn't have pyjamas on or anything. I, I was dressed, but I was like, oh. So luckily I had my phone because they could have gone all the way home. So I, yeah. you know when someone's travelling, you can hear it on the phone, you know. And, and um, yeah. it was Ted. I said, Ted, what's going on? He said, Robert, darling, why are you ringing me from your bunk? And I said, um, I'm not in my bunk. I said, where are you? He said, well, we're just off the junction. We're on our way down the motorway. <laughs> and he said, where are you? I said, I'm at Heston Services. <laughs> so he started pissing himself laughing. And I said, what, are you, what, what? What? He said, well, do you want us to come and get you? <laughs> and then off, off the phone, he's like, he's not in his bunk. And then like, what did he tell somebody? And I was like, I told, Amanda saw me get off the bus anyway. <laughs> So they said, right, we're going to have to turn around and come back and get you. So, of course, they have to come the next junction, which is Reading or something. They come off, come back on the other side, go all the way into London again to come uh, back out to get me. Uh, <laughs> and I thought, I'm going to get killed. Now, the, the, it was the end of the tour anyway, but the, the bus driver pulled his curtain back and he opened his little window. He's like, oh, you wankers. I mean, he's laughing, you know. <laughs> and then I said, oh, God, okay, I'm so sorry. Then the door opens and Steve's um, wife comes out and she just starts puking all over the floor. <laughs> Maybe you shouldn't be sharing this, but it was like one of those moments where I thought I was in trouble and I looked at her and I was like, yeah, I think you need to stop right now, yeah. I thought I was in a bad place, but this is far worse. And Steve was like, oh, come on, get on the bus. And Amanda was like, oh, you should have said. I said, you saw me pass you, you know, anyway. But people do get left behind at times, you know. It does happen. But all these things happen. But Rob, anyway, yeah. Rob said that these symbols I love. He said, I don't have to roll anything off. They just sit in the mix. And I've had them ever since, you know, and... and um I don't care about the fact they're not a name. Uh, you know, I'm 50 now and I'm thinking, well, yeah, there's still some, hopefully, longevity in my career. But I, I'm not going to get on the... I've got the drum company I want. I've got vintage stuff that I still play when I want the vintage stuff. And DW know we all do that. And they're more than happy that you use D, uh, Gretsch or um, my super classic Ludwig at times and my four, Ludwig 400. But most of the time when I'm posting online, people see me recording, I do have the DW gear, you know. I love yeah. some vintage stuff at the side. But with symbols, I'm not fussed. I was soon to play a company that I'm really happy with, that have been good to me. I know, that, you know, they're never going to be as big as Zildjian. They don't offer those things. But if you think about it, you get on the tree with Zildjian or Sabian, you've got a long way to go because you've got Steve Gad up there, you've got all these other people, yeah. you know. Whereas you're on a smaller tree you get up a bit higher quicker, you know? Yeah. So I kind of took that route and I'm the bespoke thing, which for me works with these symbols. I said earlier, I don't really go for that thing, but this time I did. And yeah. I'm just, I'm more than happy, man. I'm more than happy with what I've got. And the, the, res, the results, excuse me, are on the records and um, they're on the performances, you know, wherever I take them, people are like, oh, weird name, but great symbols. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. They, they I actually kind of like the name. Although yeah. I did think about Star Trek immediately, but... I like Star Trek, so I'm I'm cool with that. Me too, and I they're, 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 I think they're trying to design some interesting um, uh, drum gear that maybe has a con- you know some sort of link to that. But of course, Gene Roddenberry, all that's going to be well sewn up. So you know, yeah, but, I reckon. But, but they're in talks with them, so who knows? There might be some sort of thing that comes out. But but anyway, <laughs> the symbols are great, man, and. Um, and, and and all those contacts lead me to, you know, the Grammy thing I got with Laura Pacini. Though I don't own a Grammy, obviously, I'll have a certificate. Um, but that was through, again, through a, a contact to um, Real World and Charlie Jones and the string player with Coldplay, the arranger, I, David Rossi, through that. It was all these contacts, you know. And I yeah. did a tour with David Rhodes. I know you'll know David Rhodes from 
Peter Gabriel's band. He plays guitar on every Peter album from the very first one up to present day. Um, Touring with David. Uh, and that's how we ended up doing the Laura Pacini thing, which was an Italian record, but won a Grammy. Um, mm. And then from there, you know, the last thing was that uh, then Michel Polnareff did that thing and then um, ended up with uh, the Lorena McKinnett which was just a session at Real World. Again, Stuart Bruce, a local guy who's a massive engineer. He's done everything from Do They Know It's Christmas, the original one, you know, right the way through to John McLaughlin, and he's done everybody, you know, uh, loads of stuff with Trevor Horn. Anyway, the list goes on. But he, I get on really well with him. He gets me in to do lots of sessions, um, and he just rang up one day and said, do you want to come down to Real World to work with this artist? I'd never heard of her, but he said, do a bit of research. Come down tomorrow. I've bigged you up. I know you can do the job. Come on down. Uh, yeah. And I've always liked Clanad, I've always liked Enya, and she's right in that sphere. And she's right. had a 20 or 30 year career doing that stuff. And I don't live in that world completely, but I get it and I do yeah. like some of it. So for me, it wasn't such a reach. Again, having this massive palette I could pull from. Um, and she was great because she thought in colours, you know, though she's a great classical musician and a beautiful singer. And she plays harp and uh, uh, accordion as well. She plays just everything. Um, but harp playing is beautiful. Um, and uh, she was thinking colours, like, Rob, on this, you know, I'm thinking, you know, like, there's a darkness, you know. And she was sort of saying this, I'm feeling purple. And I am feeling, and I just loved it because I love all that ethereal stuff. I could totally get yeah. into it. So, um, yeah, and then they asked me, we did the album, and then about four months later I got a call from Pasadena, and it was Brian. Her, her um, well, he's the guitarist in the band, but he co-helps, MD, whatever. Um, yeah. And he said, do you want to do the world tour? And I was like, yes. And that was that. So that takes us up <laughs> to the present day. And of course, it's been stopped because of COVID, but we're going to be doing hopefully next year. Um, well, it's already being booked. So uh, some some gigs, I can't say too much, but yeah, things are happening. And hopefully COVID doing its thing of buggering off or at least calming down because we're all getting vaccines. We'll see that we can all get back on the road again soon. So that brings us up to, to scratch, I think, to that the present day. My God, we've been talking for hours. I love it. I knew we'd do this. I knew we'd do it. (laughs) (laughs) I just hope my audio's all right. Big thank you to this week's guest, Robert Bryant. If you want to hear more from him, we have a part two out. It's a Beatles special, basically, and it's the preamble chat from uh, this podcast before we got really into it. Uh, where basically I I can see parts of Robert's collection and we're talking about the things I can see. He's showing me records. We're basically just having a big muso nerdy anorak chat. And I think if you guys are into that, you're really going to dig it. For more things Robert Bryan, we're going to leave links in the show notes descriptions. And uh, we're going to ask you this week to like, subscribe. If you think there's a friend out there that would like this podcast, then please send it to them. Word of mouth is really, really important. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That would be great. Uh, you can follow the show on Twitter and Instagram. It is at the Giant Pod. You can follow me on Instagram. It is Andy underscore S1S. This podcast was produced by the sixth Beatle, Harry Williams. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week on the Giant Pod. <laughs>